Blog Talk Radio.
for today's program. And right now, we will bring in, we'd like to welcome Brother Anthony to Africa on the Moon. Welcome, Brother Anthony. Thanks for having me, Brother Africa. Revolutionary greetings to the, to you, the fellow panelists, and the listening audience. My name is Anthony Williams. I'm an organizer for the All African Peoples Revolutionary Party, GC. Objective is Pan-Africanism, the total liberation and unification of Africa under scientific socialism. Welcome, Brother Anthony. Father and Brother Anthony, we'd like to bring in Lix and Brother Moses. We're happy to have you back, Brother Moses. Welcome to Africa on the Moon. Can you hear me? Yes, we can, Brother Moses. Okay. Greetings. Uh, I'm, I'm Brother Robert Andrew Moses. I greetings to everyone within the sound of my voice. My, I've been in the struggle for scientific socialism from the moment I was introduced to Marxism during a government class back in my high school years, 1968. I call Marxism the race to cure racism. I bear witness that there's one God, Jesus, the author and finisher of my faith, and that Mao Zedong is his messenger for government. Fathers, help your children. And thank you, Brother Africa, for allowing me to be on the show. Thank you, Brother Moses. Father and Brother Moses, we then will bring in Brother Haki. Welcome, Brother Haki, to Africa on the Moon. Uh, Brother Africa, <clears throat> thanks for having me. My name is Haki Kamafi Mishoki. Kind of with African awareness, and my whole thing is all about institution buildings. You know, Brother Africa, recently I read an article about a case, a judicial case in Texas, in which the judge tried to influence the jurors to uh, exonerate a young lady who was on trial for sex trafficking. It's very interesting, you know, that even though this, it was, this, this, this uh, kind of corruption was exposed, uh, the judicial body in Texas refused to censure or even fire his judge you know, for for the kind of uh, outrageous acts in terms of his his attempt to uh, to undermine justice. So, given that reality, uh, we got to at some point conclude that you know, irrespective of class, when we talk about the kind of hostility toward uh, toward people, uh, is very very prevalent among those who have not a lot of power. And so, therefore, we got to begin to understand at some point, you know, that it's coming upon us to create institutions in terms of not only uh, educating our children, but also in terms of just being able to protect ourselves against a very powerful onslaught who don't necessarily have justice in mind in terms of how society is organized. So this case sort of underscores why it's so important in terms of having institutions to combat the situation uh, that we find ourselves currently confronted with. So having said that, Brother Africa, I just want to thank you for having me on the show, and uh, let's have a good show. Okay, following Brother Haki, we'd like to bring in and welcome Brother Zabari. Brother Zabari, welcome to Africa on the Moon. Peace, everybody. Brother Jabari, resident researcher. As usual, I'm grateful for the opportunity to be a part of the program, and I look forward to um, conscious discussion with my fellow panelists and the listening audience. Peace. All right, let's get started with this party, panelists. As always, there are so many things going on in our world and community. We'd like to hear from you. Share with our listening audience. Thought you, Brother Anthony. What's going on in your world and the community? 
Okay, a couple of issues of concern. Uh, recently, I read an article uh, last week about this brother who was found uh, found dead, uh, rolled up in a mat uh, with with some of his organs missing. And uh, this has been uh, overshadowed, unfortunately, by uh, by the uh, by the uh, con- uh, controversy over um, over uh, you know various African celebrities, uh, you know uh, uh, alleged uh, you know uh, misconduct with uh, women and youth. Uh, such as uh, Michael Jackson, R. Kelly, and others. Also, uh, I, I read an article where a lot of the uh, the African men that were that provided uh, the leadership for the revolt that took place in Ferguson uh, over the Michael Brown, uh, uh, you know, uh, murder. Have been uh, have uh, been been, been uh, found dead under very mysterious uh, circumstances, uh, such as either suicides or being uh, you know burned uh, you know in, in, inside uh, you know uh, vehicles, and uh, there has uh, been hardly any coverage in the mainstream media. Regarding this, which speaks to the need for us to be organized so that we're aware of what's going on in our community and and better protect ourselves. Mm. Brother Anthony, the beat goes on, huh? I hear you. Let's Brother move on to... Yes, go ahead, Brother Bobby. Can I just respond to one of Brother Anthony's points real briefly? Yes, you may. In regards to what seemed like something that could have been a eugenics-based um, episode in terms of the brother rolled up in a mat, you know, in Florida, not that long ago, there was a similar scenario that briefly in certain news outlets, something like this happened. And I don't know how many people have seen it, but that's one of the key things that's at the focal point of the new movie, Us, by the same person that did Get Out. The movie talks about how there may be cloning and organ um, stealing type of scenarios that are going on, especially with men of color, because as Get Out shows you, there's definitely a lot of value in terms of how strong genetically our organs are and how they use those to um, better the um, living conditions for certain people who have certain ailments. So it's interesting that this happened to this young man that was at the prime of his life as a teenager, all these valuable organs that all of a sudden goes up missing. And we know by and large who um, the person, what they look like in terms of the people that normally engage in this type of phenomenon. And to add to your point, Jabari, there's been an ongoing um, awareness around the scientific community, the function and the importance of melon. And the more melon you have, the more um, creative the body can be in terms of resisting things, creating things, what have you. And they know that this issue of melanin we know that majority of uh, melon people have the most melon as human beings come from people with the darker hue or darker skin. So they're trying to really figure out 
how not only to better understand it, but how to use it to prolong their life and make their body become more efficient in terms of maybe dealing with um from 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 particles that may enter their body and cause them to catch certain diseases and stuff. So it's a lot going on in terms of this whole question, still trying to understand um the the, the human body, understand nature, how it functions and how it relates to to various different species. So um it's interesting. Okay, next we go to Brother Hackey. Brother Hackey, what's going on in your world in the community? Yeah, well, a couple of things real quickly. First, let me just mention African American Association. We're doing a, a travel road to liberation and freedom to Cuba. We'll be going to Guantanamo, Santiago de Cuba, and Havana. And the trip takes place July 24th to July 31st. Uh, for more information, we ask people to contact us at 202-714-9435 or email us at African Awareness Association, all one word, number two, at gmail.com. That's African Awareness Association, number two, at gmail.com. We encourage people to go to see first half for themselves a model that is known as Cuba in terms of its ability in terms of not only get things done economically under very suppressing uh, conditions, but to actually create conditions in which the people actually excel despite the kind of blockade, the kind of criminal activity engaged by Western states, particularly U.S., in terms of preventing people from self-actualizing. So we encourage people to go to Cuba and see firsthand what the Cubans are doing what we can implement in this country in terms of the survival of our people, in terms of being able to successfully uh, engage these are very destructive uh, systems that are, here, that, are, that are geared toward destruction of African people. Uh, now, the second thing, Brother Africa, is that in line with something that uh, Brother Anthony and Brother Jabari talks about, and that is the whole uh, surveillance of journalists. You know, one of the things that's very, very prevalent in society there's a real uh, desire among those in positions of power to ensure that the mass of people don't have access to information. It's ironic in the context of democracy that you have a situation in which uh, you don't want your citizens to have access to information. But under National Security Act uh, uh, policies, uh, there's one called Domestic Investigation and Operations Guideline, and which was established back in 2011. And, I, and what it said is that any time someone comes up with uh, investigative um, sources, that the U.S. Uh, doesn't necessarily know about or potentially has the, the uh, potential for conflict in terms of U.S. government policy, those individuals are going to be spied upon. And they have situations down in the board in which journalists uh, who went there to do their job were allowed access across the board to, to investigate simply because those positions of power deemed their investigations a threat to national security. So clearly we got to understand that <clears throat> we got to understand that our fundamental right to exist as human beings constitute an inherent uh, national security threat to those nations of power. And so what does that mean in terms of longevity in society? What does it even mean in terms of the question of justice? At some point, we have to begin to address these inadequacies in terms of these policies that exist that tend to undermine the interests or the humanity of, of people. So without some kind of analysis in terms of what's going on, then I don't see a way conceivable for us to actually talk about the longevity in the society. It's simply because given the reality is that but there's a certain amount of pressure those positions of power to eradicate those who not, not only who are perceived as uh, a threat to national interest in the sense that they understand things, but also those who, uh, by virtue of economic uh, delay or decay, uh, don't have in, uh, the system doesn't have any need for them in terms of being able to provide employment and so forth for them. So clearly we are against real obstacles, and, and at some point, I think we have to really begin to understand the nature of the beast and begin to understand that this is, this is, this is not trivial. 
this is very, very serious, and we got to take it as such. And uh, now I'm going to close with that. Thank you, Brother Haki. Brother Tavari, coming back to you, what's going on in your world in the community? While we wait for Brother Jabari to stop in, let's go with Brother Moses. Brother Moses, what's going on in your world? Well, it's been, it's been an interesting week. Um, around the 21st of March, um, the $15 minimum wage bill was on Governor Larry Hogan's of Maryland's desk where he was likely to veto it. But uh, the advocacy... Uh, has has garnered enough votes to override his veto, and um, that's been a pretty interesting in Maryland with the fifteen dollar minimum wage bill. I'll leave it right there. And brother Zabari, can you hear us? What's going on in your world community? Can you hear me? Yes, we can. Okay. Um. In regards to points of discussion, I want to bring up, you know, there's a lot of talk of allegations of key um, figures that fall into the status of billionaire. In particular, you've heard about um, the discretions with Robert Kraft and that of um, Agent 45. But the question you have to ask is, especially in regards to 45, Everybody is awaiting to see what's going to be published in terms of Robert Mueller's finding from his investigation. But recently, we know that the Prime Minister of Israel, um, Netanyahu, is facing big um, charges in terms of certain things he's been um, alleged of doing. But yet, you don't hear um, of 45's relationship with him. There's no mention of that because the thing you have to ask is that this is one of the key leaders that he made sure to coach himself um, up to when he was on the campaign trail, but yet. This guy has faced serious investigation given the relationship between Israel and the United States. One cannot help but wonder what exactly was 45 role and what was going on in terms of how they make sure to keep a good relationship in terms of the leadership between the president and the prime minister of that particular nation. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You know, going back earlier, I think, Anthony, to the case you mentioned about they finding um, a youth body rolled up in a mat. What state that was in? I know they had one state, if I'm not mistaken, after about a year ago in, in South Carolina where the youth body was um, not only found up, rolled up in the mat in the high school, but all the organs were taken out. Is this the same case or is this a new one? I think this is the same case. I'm not completely sure. Okay. Uh, but uh, it, it might be the same case, but uh, but again, it has, uh, it, you know, it's an article, uh, you know, I, I read, and uh, that th- there's been no coverage of it by the mainstream media. And it seems like well, there's a dearth of investigative journalism when it comes to events, you know, in our community especially. Nor has there been anybody held accountable in the school. How do you kill a, 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 a student? How do you come into school, into a school while it's, it's, it's functioning in the daytime, kill someone in the gym, roll them up, take their organs out, no nurse, no principal, nobody, no nothing, and so nothing. I think if there's a similar case in, in, in South Carolina, I think it was in South Carolina, there also been some rumors that um, 
the students who may have participated in the killing, their plans were very high-profile people in terms of position of authority that they are protecting. But the point is, how, how does that happen? Nobody held accountable inside the school. And no one, what, what, what bothers me the most is no one is, is, is saying anything about, you know, how you allow that, that to happen. No one, no one is held accountable. But how do you take Brother organs Africa, out of a human body, and and nobody knows snap? But Brother yes, Africa, go ahead, I can confirm. I know of at least one hospital where, if there's a Jane or John Doe that um, doesn't have any family that can be identified that may just die in the street to a variety of reasons, their body will involuntarily be donated to science to be used as a cadaver or used to study upon. So I don't find it far-fetched that people who, especially people that are the prominent health, it wouldn't be far-fetched for their organs to be snatched if they can't identify you as a Jane or John Doe that passed away and they just involuntarily take your body. So what's the difference? And this is already happening anyway. So that's the thing. It's a trend. It can be a blip. When you look at the fact that this happened in sanction, it's not like people don't know that doesn't happen, but that's how a lot of these, um, medical school get the um, body, the specimen that um, students study. People who can't be identified so they just take the body. Mm-hmm. Panelists, what shall I take on the the narrative of Marler and his investigation case of possible collusion between Donald Trump and the the, the country of Russia? What do y'all make out how it's been playing? How it is being played out so far. As of today, they say his conclusion that there's no, no collusion. Uh, he's not guilty of anything, but at the same time, he allowed his assistant attorney general and another another high legal authority to make that final that final decision, even though. He did all the all, all the work in terms of investigation, but what do y'all make up of, of, of that that phenomenon? Of course, they are not planning on getting all the information to the public. What do y'all make of that? Clearly, yeah, well, this, go ahead. Clearly, this was Haki. a oh, Jabari, go ahead, Jabari. Clearly, this was a publicity stunt. If I, can you hear me? Yes, we can. Yes. Can y'all hear me? Okay. Yes, clearly, this was a pub- clearly this was a publicity stunt. If this is going to be the result of the finding, because I say a publicity stunt because of all the shadowy connections that this individual has, and he had an, even had connections to an organized sex trafficking ring. This is what you're going to um, look into his um, dealings about. Of all things, something that someone made up that was an ongoing soap opera. So clearly it was a publicity stunt that was a mass weapon of mass distraction because people were so caught up in what's going to come out and what's not going to come out when there's still big issues when you look at in terms of Agent 45 and the kind of people he's involved with because never have you seen anything recent like this where when you look at the people in his cabinet, especially all of them have this dubious history in one way or another in terms of decisions made or policies they advocate. So the question is why aren't you going out there for the policies they advocate versus um, making up some false narrative about why an election went the way it did when really if you're going to talk about collusion, why did the Democratic Party went against one of their candidates and to um find the least favorable one 
And that's what ruined the election for them. Yeah, well, you know, to make a distinction between collusion and communications, and um, I have no faith in the Mueller investigation. I don't think they're going to they're going to they're, they're going to uh, pursue all the leads that they have. And one of the things that are very clear when we talk about communication between Russia and, and Trump, uh, we talk about the kind of business investments that Trump had in Russia, and the willingness of the Russian government to give them large tax credits. The sole purpose of bringing to into fruition uh, these these large buildings in Russia. Uh, so clearly, there was some type of relationship that existed, and the question is, of course, at what time these relationships existed? Uh, even at the time uh, that he was uh, president, I'm not I'm not talking about prior to him becoming president. I'm talking about at the time he was in actual office. These kind of discussions took place with respect to Trump, I mean, Trump officials, and the Russian government or Russian officials. And so, therefore, the mere fact that this kind of uh, this kind of uh, complicity existed on a, on a on a, um, a spiritual uh, level, uh, you can always charge him with conspiracy. Uh, often, we talk about the RICO statutes in which they go after people under conspiracy theories. Well, if in fact you're really content in terms of getting this guy for a criminal offense, you can get him on RICO. You can get him on you know conspiratorial facts. But I don't think they're particularly interested in that reality. Uh, as recently as came out, information came out of the fact that he uh, he actually was aware uh, that supposedly that the Trump, I mean that the Russian, uh, the Russian intelligence tapped into DNC computers and that they held information on Hillary Clinton and what they were going to use in terms of uh, helping Trump candidacy. Well, if in fact this is true and the information bears it out, and the question is why don't you pursue charges? Uh, because silly, what he did was clearly unethical. It was criminal. Uh, in terms of high, man, high crimes and misdemeanors, clearly, clearly it, was, it, was, it was criminal. But I don't think they have a real and kind of compelling interest in terms of actually going against, going up against, you know, convicting the orange menace. Because I think one of the things they, they recently they've been talking about, their concern, is if they go after the, 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 the red menace, the orange menace, uh, there may be some type of uh, um, retaliation by his forces, his, his right-wing forces in America, in terms of kicking off a civil war. And so therefore, they they they're, they're given the 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 the, the inferences that if they go after him, they'll kick off a civil war. So therefore, it's best to just let him continue to stay in power. So clearly, I have no confidence whatsoever in terms of the Mueller uh, the Mueller report. Anyone else want to take a stab at that? If if not, let's let's um just just a little discussion on which is y'all make of this 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 narrative of still attacking Michael Jackson and his legacy in terms of becoming a, um, you know, being involved in molesting, a, 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 um, you know, young children. Uh, particularly there have been recently a documentary that Open Winfrey has produced, and it has created a lot of discussion in our community around the whole issue of why are they still trying to discredit and attack Michael why she took on this role, and what it really means in in the context of the overall scheme of African people here and abroad. The whole question of how they deal with this this whole so-called so-called illusion of uh, of messing with children when he has already been proven anywhere by the so-called FBI, none of the allegations has has ever happened. I'd like to get your take on that phenomenon. Uh, this smells of opportunism, and also uh, and also uh, a chance to make money. Uh, 
on the part of, uh, you know, uh, the youth that are making those accusations. And uh, as far as Oprah's concerned, it's a chance to uh, make money at the at, at, at the expense of smearing the image of uh, this, uh, you know, the, the, this African uh, artist. And uh, I say that because this comes up years after it allegedly took place. And uh, after the brother's been dead for a while, uh, you know, for for years, and um, you know, and, and and therefore is not in a position to defend himself, uh, uh, himself, and it's almost like he's being tried twice, you know, for the same, uh, you, you know, set of allegations. You know, you know what, you know what. One of the things I think we have to keep in mind when we talk about these kind of investigations. Uh, one of the things is that the people in positions of power have a long memory, and they don't forget. In the case, uh, let's say Bill Cosby. Bill Cosby was one of the individuals who, when he first came, when he first became recognized, he did this, this sort of film called Black History Lost, Stolen, or Strayed, and he talked about in terms of how Black history was co-opted, how it was stolen, how people got credit for Black history, and he talked about it in the film. And so that was unprecedented, and that was back in the 70s. And so that was unprecedented. And, and, and there were a lot of people who didn't take a like that. And so when he attempted to purchase the NBC uh, television network, uh, he was rebuffed, in other words, because they wouldn't let him know that what he did in terms of educating people in terms of importance in terms of African history, that he did a no-no. And so therefore he would be punished. So they didn't allow him to purchase the NBC network, even though he had the money. Uh, in the case of... Um, Michael Jackson. One of the things about Michael Jackson, uh, love him or not, uh, he, he did a great deal in terms of advancing, you know, black causes in the society. He really did. He used his money, and he didn't necessarily talk about it, but he did a lot of good things for African people in terms of investments. And so you got to take his head off to him. That's not a favorable thing. Also, Michael took on the status quo, uh, which is a situation where uh, Michael actually brought the Beatles catalog was unprecedented. That's something that simply historically African people simply don't do. If somebody didn't allow you to buy it, that's simply too much, too much money. Uh, there's too much wealth involved in those catalogs. He was able to purchase the Beatles catalog along with his own. And clearly, that, that we're talking about dollars and cents. So the people in positions of power are not comfortable with the idea of this African man making all of that money, having access to all that money. So clearly, he was an enemy. And so, therefore, those positions of power never forget to say that what he did, that he set a precedent, and they don't like that. And so, therefore, they're going to come at him. So the mere fact that even more locally, when you look at uh, Jamil Alamine in Atlanta, Georgia, in terms of his, his formerly as H. Rap Brown, you look at the kind of commitment he made to the aspiration of African people in society, some, some 30 years later they come out to him with a bogus charge in terms of some crime that he didn't even commit because those positions of power have long memories. So what do you do or anything they have to do in terms of undermining uh, the collective consciousness of African people, in other words, Anything they can do in terms of uh, uh, destroying a legacy of African people uh, symbolized by particular individuals, they're going to do it. So this is, this is the thing that we've got to understand. So we talk about Michael Jackson, and then we talk about, you know, what, many, many years later, then you talk about something that's re try Michael Jackson again. And the question is, of course, why did Oprah do that? I mean, there's stuff to be served by that. Uh, you know, uh, in fact, you know, he was found, you know, not guilty, you know, by a jury of his peers. The FBI exonerated him. 
Uh, he did everything. He played by rules of the game. The people who supposedly were victimized had the opportunity, you know, during the interim to come forward and say, listen, this is what he did. Well, now that he's dead, everybody comes forward. It's sort of similar to what happened to Bill Cosby. All of a sudden, now everybody comes forward because there's a payday involved. And so there's incentive in terms of to, to embellish and say things that didn't actually happen. I'm, I don't know if the brother was a, was a pedophile or not. But all I know is that, you know, in terms of jurisprudence, when you have a situation where people are tried in court and they're exonerated, then, you know, you, you respect that decision. So I think the mere fact that it can grow up in positions of power speaks values in terms of the long memory of those in positions of power in society and their unwillingness to forgive. Uh, and so I think that those Africans in society who, who are fortunate enough to get, obtain status, who have opportunity to make money, uh, they become prime targets because in destroying them, you essentially destroy people because you create, you eliminate an example for young African children to aspire to. So I, I have no, I, I suspect uh, there's a foul play in terms of the motivation behind this investigation of Michael Jackson. Well, you know, one of the things I found out as I began to look at this issue, how they dealt with this particular phenomenon of trying to accuse Michael of doing something that he, he never did, was that um, the major networks that were at Open Winfrey, they all had agreement to interview Michael Jackson's niece, um, his niece. I was trying to think of her first name. Um, it was the oldest son, um, who was the oldest son, Jackie? It was his daughter. They had a chance to interview her to, to tell her story because her story was real compelling and really interesting because at the time when one of the major um, boys who they interviewed during this particular documentary who, been, who has been proven to have total lies, he had a 10 to 12 year relationship with her during that time period when this was been taking place. And she knew him very well. But they had interviews scheduled to interview her and tell her side. And do you know that all the major networks, for some odd reason, decided to cancel her interview and not interview her? Why would they do that? One of the questions around open reference is that one of the one of the major players in the in the music industry had some issues with Michael Jackson, and he wanted to not only undermine them, but also there is an issue they still want to get certain estates, certain properties that the Jackson family have, 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 uh, has access to. And most people don't realize that this year there are a attempt to create some ongoing major activities around Michael Jackson's 10th, 10th year of being in transition, anniversary in terms of transition. And they didn't want them to be in a position to possibly make financial money off of his well-being. So I'm just wondering, you know, what is the motivation of canceling this interview? And if Oprah Winfrey is a billionaire and she has that kind of power, many people say she was forced to do the interview because the people who allowed her to create the wealth told her, you need to do it because this is a favor that you have to do for us because we allow you to be what you are. So it reminds me of the whole point that, again, in this society, when African people think the ultimate goal is to make money, have money, just because you have money, you have freedom, that is an illusion. Oprah Winfrey is no more than a modern-day slave, even with all of the so-called illusion of money that she has. So am I wrong for making that 
making that kind of assessment, panelists? Y'all tell me. I think it's an interesting uh, uh, observation you make, Brother Africa, because um, you know, uh, you know, uh, uh, often, uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, you know, Africans are taught in school that money is the key to power. It does not translate that way. And uh, and it's interesting you bring out uh, you bring out the example of Oprah Winfrey. Because uh, you know that's a good example. Of that she she's a billion a, a billionaire, a multi billionaire, which is rare, very rare for uh, for, for 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 most Africans, uh, you know, to reach that kind of status. Yet she does not have the power to uh, uh, to make her own business decisions. In other words, there are people that are even, that have even more wealth than she does that are calling the shots, and uh, and uh, you know some there, there's some Africans who believe that you have to you know play the game to be successful, but it seems as if once Africans figure out how to play the game, uh, the ruling class changes the rules of the game. And uh, and 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 they still maintain control, so that no, uh, you know, I think the I think the big lesson is that no matter how much money you accumulate or how much visibility you accumulate, that does not translate into power. It brings us to that old argument, old adage: um, um, uh, economics versus. Economics versus uh, um, politics. Politics, yes. And it's it's very interesting because what you alluded to is absolutely correct. There are many of us in African communities who still contend that if wealth is the is the is the the cure all in terms of the the, the limit that we're confronted with. So as Oprah underscores, you can have all the wealth in the world, and as Brother Anthony articulated. You may have all the wealth in the world, but if you but if you don't have enough wealth to compete against or with more wealth, then the question in terms of final say so lies with those who have the most wealth. And so, in a final analysis, when you talk about power, then you got to conclude that you don't have as much power as you think you have, or the power that you do have is negligible, in which those who want to undermine the power could do so at any time. So, power comes from an understanding. So, power really comes from an understanding. And that's where our community is fundamentally lacking is the understanding. See, that understanding makes it possible for us to create that frame of reference, that frame of thought, and make it possible for us to work together to, to, to survive any situation because we understand what we have to do in terms of challenges. So when we talk strategically or tactically, then it's not a leap in terms of understanding because we basically all we have a fundamental understanding in terms of what society organized, and so therefore the power is going to come from us understanding how that society is organized what we got to do in terms of engaging in society, you know, for our own self-interest. Uh, but clearly, uh, you know, all the money in the world is, is, is not the solution. And, uh, and I can recall uh, Robert Johnson, when he sold BET, uh, he got a lot of money, okay? But, of course, the process of selling BET, what he did was undermine the aspiration and interest of a whole, a whole generation of African people in America. And so, therefore, on some level, he may think that he gained on another, on a much more larger, much more larger, more, more systematic level. He essentially screwed a lot of African people. And of course, at some point, I read an article where he actually thinks about that from time to time. 
Uh, but at the time, he was blinded by the money and thinking that the money is going to make him somebody, only to find out that you got the money. You know what? You still got the same problems you had even before you had the money. Uh, so clearly, um, you know, uh, this question in terms of, you know, politics versus economics is still one of these kind of uh, uh, schisms that exist in the community in which we have to have these discussions in terms of bringing to the head, you know, what is more correct in terms of our understanding the world. Because without a clear understanding in terms of which way forward, then we continue to make the same mistakes, bad mistakes, over and over again, and not understanding why we keep why the result is the same. So we have to we have to resolve that, that contradiction around the question of politics versus economics. You know, panelists also this case looking at Oprah Winfrey and this allegations against Michael Jackson make me think about the issue around the question of we need to have a better understanding and a concept of exactly what is power. And this question of power for an individual versus the power of a group. Now, I'm saying if your group is not in power, then I don't think you can have no power as an individual. Because ultimately, the power comes from, come from, come from the group. And you are treated according to the relationship of the group that you represent and the power that it has. This is why they do certain things to certain people and don't do it to other people in terms of how they perceive them and what they represent. And I think we keep continue to miss the point. Our struggle should be about empowerment and having the group free and empower, not an individual. Hell, we see now, we can see today, if you can take the wealth and money from nations, if right now they can go and say, I'm going to take your oil, I'm going to take your gold, Libya, I'm going to take your oil, your gold, your bauxite, if you're in the world, if they can just outright take gold, money, wealth from from nations all around the world, what make you think you're free to do as you want to do because you have a few dollars? When are we gonna learn a lesson? Because now, I think the big problem uh, now, is that now, we're now, not taught. Just go ahead, Anthony. No, I was gonna say that we're not taught that money is a medium medium of exchange only, uh, and that's why it's called correctly currency. It, uh, it, uh, it, 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 the purpose of, uh, of currency is the ability to make exchanges. Power comes from the control of resources. And Africans are powerless throughout the world because Africans are not in control of Africa's resources. Someone else is, is in control of Africa's resources tonight. And uh, and because and as a consequence of that, Africans throughout the world are powerless and disrespected everywhere. And uh, one of Kwame Ture's many lessons was that visibility does not uh, does not correspond to power. You can have all the visibility you want. That does not mean you have. Uh, any power whatsoever. Yeah, I, well, you know. Go ahead, Brother Hackey. Okay, yeah. Uh, yeah, well, there's, you know, one, one of the things is that, you know, we've been so programmed, we've been so conditioned to believe, uh, you know, that how we equate wealth with power. And one of the things to start with Brother Anthony saying, when we talk about currency, I think, it's important to understand is the means of establishing value. 
Uh, the problem is that when we when we talk about value in the context of, of capitalism, capitalism uh, a lot of times that value uh, um, sort of distorts uh, reality or it distorts what it means to be a human being in society. So anytime you equate money in terms of uh, worth, then you fundamentally have a problem. So to the extent that African people keep valuing money as an extension of their worth, then by extension what you're saying, if you don't have money, you're nobody. And this stuff gets internalized. And this is the problem in our people that continue to believe in today. So you have a young brother, young sister on the streets, you know, drug stealing, you know, doing the will of, of those in power. Uh, first of all, they're not aware that what they're doing is is is, is, is uh, furthering the interests of people in power. In their mind, they think they're making money. But the value system that you that you internalize uh, uh, underscores just the, the kind of uh, the chaos, the kind of destruction the kind of hopelessness, you know, that's endemic uh, in the community, which ultimately leads to the destruction of you, not only you or your community, but your parents as well. And so, therefore, you know, this, this value system is something that we have to begin to grasp. I'm not, I'm not making a religious argument because I don't think that uh, religion is the answer in terms of people understanding who they are as human beings. I think people have to have a fundamental understanding of who they, who they are. It has to be based upon history. In understanding the history, then you understand your worth. If you don't understand the history, then when someone comes along and says, well, I got something to give you worth, which is a dollar, then they say, well, okay, I'll take it because that makes me somebody. Not understanding that that, that money translates into nothing. It doesn't mean a damn thing in terms of who you are, defining who you are, or the expressions or the desires of humanity generally. All it does is make the illusion that, in fact, that uh, you're somebody. And so we have to quit succumbing to that illusion that we're somebody based upon how much money we make, how much access we have to money, and understand that we're talking about true power, Brother Africa, as you alluded to, then we got to talk about the group. This is why we, we, we tell brothers and sisters, okay, it's fine, you know, it's fine to raise money for certain endeavors, you know, to help our people. That's fine. There's no problem with that. But if that's your only endeavor is to raise money, then you've got to understand fundamentally that what you're saying is that the strategy that you impose is limited. It can't empower masses of African people. If we can't impose the masses of African people, then we can't seriously talk about power. This is important, the point that we keep trying to get across. But I think people have to, particularly African people, they have, working class people as well, they have to understand the, the, the importance of history and understanding. You know, without concrete understanding of history, then you're, you're, you're prone to be uh, manipulated by those issues of power who understand clearly that um, money is simply a mean of exchange and or mean of exchange. So I think that we have to have, understand history. And then sort of that we continue to be deceived by the people's positions of power. Is that simple? And when we talk about power, we can't talk about power in isolation of not being organized. The only organized people that can um, have power, that's how power arrives. It's not being disjointed and not functioning as an individual. So anyway, um, I thought that was really interesting in terms of this phenomenon how they're dealing with uh, Michael Jackson in the context of um, the narrative that's going on now. And people sometimes miss the bigger picture. And not even really about Michael Jackson. Again, it's a psychological war, warfare that's going on against African peoples throughout the world when they attack one of us and they have the means to define and dictate how they want us to be viewed by the rest of the world from their interest and their perspective. And... Um, it's an issue of he who controls history, or if you control the people's history, then what you're doing is allowing them to control you. That, that's very important. We must come to understand. He who controls a people's history, they control their people. 
And this is another facet of this phenomenon. So right now, anyway, what we're going to do right now, panelists, this is Africa on the Moon, listening audience. If you've been listening to the discussion and you'd like to make a comment, we ask you to hit, hit 1, call 323-679-0841. Please hit 1. If you have any comments or questions, uh, we're on the segment, what's going on in your world and your community. If you have something to say, please hit 1. Before we go on our station break, panelists, one other quick discussion we'd like to have, and then we'll go into our theme tonight, which is the state of being. Uh, panelists, i got to get y'all to talk a little bit about this March Madness. They are now having the final um, tournament to see who becomes the best college basketball team in the United States. And when we talk about this March Madness, it goes back to old saying, while we are getting played, they are getting paid. This mob madness is another replica of a serious plantation system where the slaves are doing all of the work and the masters are reaping all of the monies and benefits. Coaches are getting endorsements. The coaches are getting deals with tennis shoes. Coaches are taking their families to the games, but the ball players they can't get money to take their parents to see their sons and daughters play. What do y'all make of this March Madness? How long will we continue to put up with this highest form of exploitation? They're telling us that our children, they don't need to get no money. Why are you asking money? Because what we are giving them is education. Where are we going to stop this okey-doke and this craziness, panelists? When we get organized, I mean, uh, this is uh, this is one of the biggest charades that goes on to this day. I mean, um, it's a it's a system in which the people that do the work, the players, and the coaching staff get nothing, while the uh, while the the the, the univer- colleges and universities make big bucks, and the corporations that manufacture the athletic equipment, uh, uniforms, sneakers, etc. They get paid, and uh, and uh, it, and it, and it's analogous to a to a plantation sort of system. And uh, and the thing about it, though, and the hypocrisy is, in a lot of cases, these so-called student athletes don't actually take any courses at all, or they take really simple courses, and they. Uh, and they just, uh, you know, and, and that, that, but they're primarily play there to play the game, especially in the big money sports like basketball and football. You know, that's a, that's a sad commentary, but true. Uh, you know, I know that a lot of universities, uh, you know, particularly in the South, and when you get those brothers in there, you know, to play sports, make the school billions upon billions of dollars. And these brothers and sisters leave the universities, particularly brothers who leave the universities, can't read and write. So clearly, uh, there's a great deal of exploitation going on, but ultimately, the responsibility, I think, lies with the, the athletes. They must unionize. They don't have a choice. I mean, the kind of billions of dollars that go into the institutions and everybody getting paid except them, they're the ones who are dealing with the pain, the aches of terms of playing, you know, sports. And so, therefore, it's only fair that they be compensated for that. Uh, now, now, many people take position, well, they got scholarships. And so, you know, they're, they're already paid. Those scholarships don't come close to adequate compensation when we compare it to the billions of dollars they're bringing in, you know, uh, you know, to the university. 
Uh, you're absolutely correct. And one of the sad ironies is that when we talk about these coaches are making making millions of dollars a year, tens of millions of dollars a year, uh, you know, uh, living well, living how to hog, uh, living to old age, and a lot of these guys are leaving these sports with all kind of uh, uh, physical ailments. And it's it's just unfortunate. But I think at some point uh, there was a uh, a a brother uh, at the University of Tennessee, I believe, he was from. And he tried to unionize. He tried to get the athletes to unionize, unionize, you know, college sports. Uh, there was no attraction because one of the reasons why there was no attraction because uh, the media wouldn't the media wouldn't touch it at all. There was a sports writer, is a white, he's a white fellow. Uh, I think his name Zink, Zinky, something I pronounced it. Anyway, I think that was, I think that was O'Bannon from UCLA. He's one of those who tried to raise the issue that African I mean, athletes um, at universities should have a union and get unionized. And yes, legitimate points, of course, under matter. But go ahead. Yeah, well, that, well, that's that's good that you got you got you got uh, you got you got a number of people in college ranks who come out and say, "Listen, those expectations got to come to the end. We have to unionize." But ultimately, it's 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 up to the athletes. And unfortunately, what what, what athletes saying is very very true. A lot of the brothers who who play these sports, making all these money for the universities, are ill-equipped. Uh, to even raise that argument because, number one, they're not even aware that the, the possibility of unionization is a possibility. And secondly, because they're there to play sports and not to get education. And I don't want to generalize, but you got some brothers who are very bright. I mean, you got a brother out of the University of Florida who came out as a, you know, pre-med. I mean, brothers brilliant. You got brothers who come out of college playing football, you know, computer programmers. I mean, brilliant brothers. I mean, brilliant. You know what I mean? So you, you have that. You have brothers who come out going to law school. I mean, you have that. But unfortunately, uh, disproportionately, you got a lot of brothers who are there to become professional athletes, and so therefore their desire is not necessarily an academic one, but to pursue, you know, uh, sports to make big dollars. So I think that it's incumbent upon the athletes themselves to say, "Listen, this expectations has got to stop." But I think what we can do in the community is facilitate that discussion in terms of why use are necessary and to put an end to this exploitation because it clearly. Uh, this exploitation, you know, of African people this is a long history in America, and it has to come to an end. But it won't come to an end unless you have participation of athletes who are, in fact, exploited. Okay, let's take this caller who has been waiting so patiently. We're going to bring in caller 4727. Caller 4727, <coughs> welcome to Africa and Move. Your question or comment, please. Uh yeah, what's up, y'all? I wanted to comment on the the Trump thing, but I, I'll I'll go to this student athlete thing first. Uh, first thing, look up the term student athlete. Like this was something that they came up with uh, because they knew the system that they were designing was basically this is a sharecropping system. Basically, uh, you never you, you, the value that you provide is never compensated, and everybody else eats off it. So it's not just the coach who is usually the highest paid state employee when you're talking about these big universities. It's also the board. Uh, you're also talking about alumni donating because the team did, you know, X, Y, and Z last year. You know, the, the, everybody eating out of this trough, it goes all the way down to the local bar where, you know, the, the University of Georgia is playing this week, so the wait staff is fighting over who's going to work that shift because everybody else makes money except the people who are producing the money, which is the athletes. And the non-revenue sports, they pay for those too. So basketball and football have a minor league system where you could, you know, pursue your athletic endeavors and not have to, you know, deal with school if that wasn't your thing. They pay for golf, tennis, uh, you know, all the other non-revenue sports to fly across the nation and play in stadiums and have these 
uh, deals and all this other stuff that they they wouldn't be nowhere near close to getting if it wasn't for the you know the athletes paying for everything. And that would be football and basketball, which would be the majority of us. But I, I don't think the onus is on them. The onus is on not only people at these colleges, but most of us adults uh, to talk about what this system is and that it has to change uh, because the student athlete is stuck in a bad power dynamic. If you master your craft well enough to get a D1 scholarship, more than likely you've taken, you know, a little bit less academically as far as a heavy role. So you're getting put onto this campus to where you're not really prepared to handle an academic workload, but they're going to steer you into classes to keep you eligible. And, you know, if they have to do some shady things to keep you eligible, they'll do that too. But no matter what, it's not on the athletes because, like, when they tried to do that at Northwestern uh, as far as unionizing, what ended up happening was the coach and the staff and the local journalists basically put the pressure on the fifth-year uh, fifth senior who was going to be a starting quarterback for the first time. They put the pressure on him to break up the group in order to keep his starting job, which is what he ended up doing in that Northwestern case. Because basically you're talking about what are you? You're state employees. You work a job. That's what that athletic endeavor is. Because you got study hall, you got uh, you know your workouts, you got your games, uh, all your your academic workload. The teachers are supposed to work with you on it, but to a degree, it, it's it, it's it's kind of understood how it's supposed to be played. They had a thing called Prop 48 years ago. If you didn't have a certain GPA, you couldn't play your first year until you were in good academic standing. Well, they figured out the loopholes in that, and now you never hear of anybody being <laughs> Prop 48. You see what I'm saying? Because they know these kids are there to do what? Move merch, keep these billion-dollar TV deals going, like going on right now, and make everybody else wealthy. So, so yeah, overall, this is a corrupt, inhumane <laughs> uh, system, ultimately, man. And like I said, the best uh, analogy I can think of is sharecropping for it. But, yeah, adults got to get on board. There's a lot of people talking about it now, though, who understand what it is. Uh, the lawsuit, you know, for O'Bannon, uh, he actually won. So people will be able to get money for their likeness now. But when they start making these arguments about, oh, they get a scholarship, okay, well, pay the coaches in classes then. Pay them in, in, in scholarships then. Don't tell me, uh, you know, uh, Nick Saban can make $10 million a year coaching the team where alumni bought his home for him to the tune of four million dollars but the players deserve nothing but a scholarship can't work can't take any extra benefit uh with like if you get if you find a player and you take them out to dinner they could say that's an extra benefit and that player is ineligible they can't have yes, can. anything call i think yeah, go jameson ahead. got a, jameson got a problem i think he sold his jersey for a few dollars and they won't make yep. him Ineligible. They they raise all kind of hell over something over twenty dollars selling a jersey. Can you dig that? Well, anyway, yeah, a few point years ago, uh, UGA uh, UGA they had a championship ring for winning the SEC title. So the kids, man, they they didn't think of that stuff as that important like normal people would. So they sold them online for a couple hundred bucks. Uh, mm-hmm. Immediately, all the kids who sold those rings online were ineligible, couldn't play in the bowl game. And the the raggedy local media, you know, talked about how these kids didn't see the big picture and talked badly about them. Not understanding that these kids were, you know, you're away from your family. Uh, your family can't come to as many games as you would like because you can't afford it. And you're making money and you're seeing everybody else. You go to the bookstore, your jersey's in there for sale. 
you know, you, you walk around campus and you see these people's uh, the new athletic building uh, purchased last year, $7 million. You know, all this is based off your sweat equity. Uh, new workout facilities. Uh, you're flying across the country all of the time every week, these flights. All of that stuff is based on your sweat equity. And, you know, you're just watching other people get rich. So, yeah, that that is what that system is, man. It's horrible. And just add another point in terms of how you sports folks. You know, even today, what's that boy, Zion Williams, basketball player at Duke? He's yeah, the only athlete. Yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. He's the only athlete that they have ever created a special cameraman. They filming him twenty four seven, just only him. Whatever you do, wherever he goes, twenty four seven he has been filmed and they're making money off him and he's not getting a penny for it. He don't have no say so. Can you dig well, that? Well think about think yeah, yeah. That 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 point of exploitation is ridiculous already. You come up with your own camera that lets you know CBS and all these other people. They they uh, they realize the benefit of these kids. Think about culturally what one year of Zion Williamson because he's going to go to the NBA next year does. I see black people right. rooting for Duke. <laughs> now, mm-hmm. now, now y'all know mm-hmm. historically that that's the school most of us didn't like, and we always kind of hope that they lose. This dude being there has kind of made black people say, "Hey man, I want to you know I want to watch him and cheering for Duke." So that's going to lead to what more people going to Duke going forward. So it, it, it continues exactly. to make money upon money. And during that Ed, Bannon, Ed O'Bannon lawsuit, uh, the great Oscar Robinson uh, put his name in because the University of Cincinnati was still selling memorabilia from Oscar Robertson days and wasn't sending him a cut of it. They were still selling memorabilia from him. So that, that lets you know how bad this is. Mm-hmm. Wow. Yeah. But, oh, oh, on the Trump thing, man, Look, I think uh, the brother hit it on the head earlier when he talked about the, the comparison to RICO. That's basically what this was, find a smoking gun to prove collusion. But they knew if they got the investigative budget and the time, they would be able to go through him, uh, meaning the George Bank stuff, uh, the you know the Trump motel or whatever they were going to try to do in, in Moscow, the real estate holdings in Florida, the tax evasion in New York. I think they just wanted to go through all of that and see what they could get on him and then try to press him on that going forward. But I don't think the Russia hysteria that, you know, Maddow and those people were involved, I don't think that was ever the the real uh, story on this. And our media, mainstream media in America, is so bad that now what we're going to see is every few days we're going to get partisan leaks. So the right's going to leak, oh, everything, he's exonerated. Nothing has been proven. He's uh, perfectly clear. And then the left is going to, you know, leak out something. Oh, it was proven that Trump did it. He knew this on this day, and we're going to see this, you know, this, this fiasco play out over the next six months. But no story is dead now. Everything is monetized because inherently capitalism is a system that eats itself and will try to make a commodity out of anything. So this is going to be terrible, man, for the next few months. Uh, stay away from mainstream news. It's going to be bad. All of you, thank you. Stay on. And what we're going to do right now, let's pause for this cause, and we're going to make a transition to tonight's theme. And tonight's theme is an issue of a state of being. We're going to talk about the state of being. What is the state of being? What is this today? And we're going to talk about this whole issue um, dealing with Julia Hassan coming up. And what does that mean? What do this 
does that say about the state of being, looking at how they're dealing with him? So on that note, you're listening to Africa on the Move. We're going to pause for the calls, and when we come back, we're going to talk about the state of being. We're going to take a look at Julius Hassan and what is happening now to him and others who are lacking. You are listening to Africa on the Move. Continue. We welcome you back to 
to Africa on the move. When we talk about the scroll of the tenure panelists, that was a real interesting article. As we relate to that theme, a state of being, that was an article that was, that was published on March the 3rd, 2019, out of Telesville, and titled John Purich Pigger Defies the Thought Police Stand with Assange. This article talk about the present state, the present being a Julius Assange. Now, when we look at what's going on with Julius Assange today, panelists, this article raises some serious um, issues in terms of how the society see this whole question of humanity. I mean, um, who was the sister? Um, was it Roberta Flat or who was the sister who wrote the song "Killing Me Softly"? Roberta Flat. Roberta Flat. When I read the article, I, I thought about that because if you if you really look at it. That is exactly seen like that's the intention is to kill this brother softly. Not only him, but what also comes to mind, I parallel with how they treat him and the conditions he's living under and the conditions of Mumia Abu-Jamal and many other political prisoners that are definitely killing our brothers and sisters softly without us being conscious of it. So, panelists, there are so many issues that you, I can raise in this particular article. But, Brother Haki, when we talk about Julius son, one of the things that's clear in this article, he committed no crime. There shouldn't be no reason why he should have to be held in an embassy, in an Ecuador embassy, can't do anything, can't even feel fresh air. And at the stake, his health is deteriorating. So they are killing him, sorry, Brother Haki. Speak to some of the contradictions that this article raised on your perspective, Brother Haki, why we should have great concern, not only about how they treat Julius Kassan, but what that means for the rest of humanity and those who want to speak to the truth, write about the truth, and become real reporters. Yeah, well, before I even get into response to the question, Brother Africa, I think what's, what's important to the audience to understand is that, you know, there's a concept called agnotology. Now, agnotology is a science of deception. It's how you go about so often, many times, you have a discussion, particularly with Bill Maher, uh, on, on the, you know, his program. And he talks about the fact that why are Americans so stupid? Well, Americans are not biologically stupid. Americans are stupid because of the system in place to ensure the, uh, that not have access to information. It essentially controls the way people think, and controlling the way people think uh, is easier, of course, to manipulate them. And so it's called ethnotology. It's a science. So people should understand that. So when we talk about the impact of uh, Julian Swan, it's in line with the agnotology. In other words, it's all about ensuring that this information doesn't get out because the more people understand about U.S. foreign policy, then they, the more they understand just how destructive, just how dangerous it is, not only to people around the world, but to the, to, to, to citizens right inside America. Uh, so they had to they had to criminalize, uh, you know, students of Sean. Now, here's the thing. His, his organization, WikiLeaks, uh, what it was known for was that people would provide information to WikiLeaks uh, information that wasn't widely disseminated, they will provide information, sort of enriching it out to the broader public, so people have access to information. So the mere fact that he's been operating for a while and nobody bothers bothering him, then all of a sudden they have in- information pertaining to U.S. intelligence, and all of a sudden it comes the national security threat. What happened to the national security threat when they talk about other information pertaining to what's going on in the world? Well, that wasn't an issue as far as America is concerned. So clearly this notion to silence him is all about the agnotology. It's all about making sure 
people don't have access to information. Now, earlier I talked about the domestic investigation and operating guidelines under NSA, the National Security Agency. Clearly, any journalist who independently uh, seeks to convey information that is not palatable to those in positions of power, they run the risk of getting in trouble. Not only their phones tapped, but they are followed and they're censored. So whenever they go to do a program, they're constantly watching them. So they use certain words, and the words don't don't gel with what, what the people in power think they should be. Then for them, it constitutes a crime, and those journalists can find themselves charged with a crime simply because they dare do their jobs. So Julian Assange sets an example of this. And so when we talk about the fact that they got him in, in, in the, in the, in the uh, Ecuador embassy like that, uh, he can't leave because one of the things we all understand is the British play a big role in terms of, you know, uh, you know, monitoring, you know, that uh, <clears throat> monitoring uh, the embassy there. Uh, now, we, of course, we understand that when we talk about lab dogs, we understand the U.K. government is a big lab dog. I mean, it, whatever the U.S. tells it to do, it will do. And so, therefore, they have no problem in terms of carrying out the U.S. will. And so the moment he steps outside of that embassy, they're going to they're going to grab him. They're going to ship him to America. And here's the kicker. One of the things, they got a secret grand jury in which they already decided what the, what the indictment is going to be, right? They already decided that, that he's going to be tried on a secret grand, grand jury. Now, that's in, that's, in, that's in conflict in terms of so-called, you know, you know, the judicial ethics in terms of, you know, how the process when it comes to law. Well, they've already decided that he's going to be tried, also that he's going to be convicted. They specifically gave his case to this woman in eastern Virginia who's known in terms of the hack who know specifically for terms of locking up people, you know, who are engaged in in, 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 in any kind of political discourse. She's known for that. So they already got the case. So they already got it set. So the larger question is understanding that Julius Assange is an enemy, not because he did anything wrong. All he did was journalists do. He conveyed information. And keep in mind, all the information he conveyed wasn't as sensitive as me to keep telling you. He could have made a lot more sensitive information in which he didn't convey. He only conveyed information that we already know about. We know that we know that we know the the intelligence agents spy on us. We know that. We know they tap our phones. They tap our phones. We know that. Uh, we know they change information online all the time. We know that. It's, it's nothing new that he was saying. He simply provided documentation to show this is the particular program that they use to justify the kind of spying and the kind of criminal activity that the intelligence community engaged in. So he wasn't. He, he didn't really expose the U.S. as much as he could have exposed them. But the mere fact that he exposed them at all, the U.S. intelligence felt that he had to pay the price for that because, in other words, they're afraid that he's going to set an example for other progressive journalists, investigative journalists, who reveal information which the government doesn't want the people to know. So clearly, he's not a criminal. Or the criminals are the ones who are pursuing him. You know, Brother Anthony, one of the major points that uh, I've also raised in this article, and I'd like for you to um, uh, speak on it was that the way they're treating Julius Hassan is based upon the fact that they want all people in general, in general, to surrender their humanity and principles and obey the state or, or other way, obey the power elite. That's what they want to submit all the people to. Your response to that? Yes. Um uh, I I agree completely and I and I wanna share something uh he was re- what he did which is what journalists are supposed to do especially investigative journalists is that he was revealing information 
so that people can make an informed decision. Now, you cannot have a real democracy if the people do not have sufficient information in which to make decisions that affect their lives, which is why in a true democracy, education becomes so important because you really can't speak of real education. Uh, you really can't speak for a true democracy if uh, if a majority of the people are illiterate or they can't, uh, you, you know, uh, you know, study, do research and make a, a form decision about things that affect their lives. Now, one of the uh, among the things that WikiLeaks revealed was that the that the British were ex, were expelling uh, the indigenous people from Diego Garcia, and uh, you know, sending them into exile and poverty, while they uh, while they that they they, uh, they gave Diego Garcia to the U.S. to use as a military base. And there have been countless stories about how much environmental damage that's been done uh, to that area as a result of the military operations there. And also he revealed that the CIA can watch people through their iPhones and that uh, Clinton, you know, uh, took sons from money from Wall Street in order to give uh, speeches to assure bankers that she would uh, – that 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 she she would be their friend. So these are the things that uh, that 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 the U.S. government doesn't want people to know. And uh, and that's why uh, Assange is being persecuted. Uh, you know, in my opinion, just as uh, the journalists that revealed the uh, the source of the crack epidemic in the San Jose Mercury News, whose name escapes me right now. But uh, he uh, but, but he revealed that, and they ruined his career to the point where he ended up committing suicide. Mm-hmm. So they don't want the uh, uh, investigative journalism to exist because that would give people the information needed uh, to fight against uh, this oppressive system that's responsible for the oppression, and they depend upon people not having information to um, uh, to continue their uh, their oppression. Yeah, you know, it's, it's, I think it's important that we we underscore and other things, and along with other things that Anthony's saying. It's important to keep in mind that we talk about, essentially we talk about the economic system that's in decay. And they understand that. Clearly they understand that. They recently, uh, an article talks about the fact, when they talk about the bond market, talking about the U.S. attempt, the U.S. government attempt to bring in funds. Well, those bonds with maturation date of three months to ten years are not selling. So people are opting for longer-term bonds, and which means it causes the price of those bonds to go down with all these investments. Now keep in mind, when people invest in one particular, one particular instrument, when they invest in one particular bond, uh, what happens is that ultimately the, the, the government has to pay that money back. So in order to minimize the amount of money that you pay back, the, 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 the yield or how much money you can make, the profit you can make off those bonds goes down. So the government finds itself in very 
because the situation in terms of being able to raise money. The central banks have for a long time been in and pumping out money, pumping out money, pumping out money. Well, normally when you pump out money, it should, it, it should it's designed to stimulate the economy. But that's not what's happening. What's happening is they pump out more money, more money. What happens is fewer, fewer people have access to all that money they're pumping out. What they do, they invest it. They hide it. And so money doesn't go through the system, which means that the overall economy continues to decline. And they understand that. And one of the reasons why Trump has his tax break of $1.7 trillion for his people, he understands that they're going to get as much money as they possibly can before this thing falls. And they understand that. They clearly understand that. And this is a phenomenon throughout the world. And so we talk about the, the massive poverty that exists throughout the world. There's a reason why poverty exists in the world. There's a reason why people have jobs. People don't have access to housing. People don't have access to health care. Uh, there's a reason why this stuff exists. It's not a fluke. This is all systemic. This is all part of the global system that we call capitalism. It's important we understand that. And because the brother, the brother who called in earlier talked about the fact that, uh, you know, the, the, the true nature of capitalism, he's absolutely correct. And because capitalism uh, tends to reward, you know, bad behavior, it tends to reward those who are in position to actually uh, uh, create policy, then it means that as far as the aspiration of the interests of the masses of folks, there are none. They don't give a damn about you living or dying. Their, uh, their, problem, their concern is the bottom line. That's it, and they're getting that. But they're, doing, they're, they're, they're benefiting to the extent that it's, it's, it's destroying the very system which they hope to perk up. So the real irony is exists in terms of capitalism. It's the insanity of capitalism. And this is what people have to understand. So when we look at a situation why knowledge is a threat, understand. Knowledge is a threat because they understand that the more people understand how the system operates, the more people can, can, can conceivably have access to information, the more they begin to understand how this damn system works and why they have to fight it, why they got no damn choice but to fight it. And this is the big fear. And this is why anybody like Julian Assange who dare to tell him, say, I'm going to give this information to you and let you make your own decision. You say, oh, no, hell no. You can't do that. You can't expose us who we are. You know, people begin to understand how this thing really works. We can't do that. Remember, I talked about agnotology, and we talked about the, the science in terms of tricking people. The U.S. is the best in the world. It not only tricks its own citizens, it tricks people throughout the world. You got people out the world who think the U.S. is the best country in the world. Who really believe that? And that's based solely on propaganda. So if they can deceive people around the world, hell yes, they can treat people right here in America who expose some propaganda 24 hours a day, seven days a week, 365 days a year. And so when they say something that's outrageous, sometimes I lose it. Now, I shouldn't lose it. I should just understand the people are causing stupidity because they're being conditioned to do that. Sometimes I lose it because I realize implicit in this, in the complicit in this of stupidity that people articulate sometimes, it means the destruction about people. And that's what gets me sometimes. And I got to understand, you know, that, not to take yourself personally when people say things that are outrageous and understand they're just articulating the ignorance that they're being programmed to articulate. But in any event, understand, Jesus Assange is not the enemy. The enemy is capitalism. And people have to understand that clearly. If they don't, well, then you got to do more studying in terms of understanding that concretely. Okay, I'd like to borrow in Brother Moses away, and then we'll go back to our call on 4727. Uh, Brother Jabari and Brother Moses, I'd like for y'all to weigh in on this issue. One of the things that came from this article I think people need to be aware of is that we got to make sure we understand the difference between form and essence. And I'm saying that in, in conjunction when you read this article, based upon that room that Julia Assange is staying in, they have created that like an isolation cell block. He has been isolated. His own lawyer cannot speak to him. 
You don't have access to feeling air like any normal human being. You don't have access to normal daylight. And what it does is it's it basically destroying them physically. Now, what do y'all make up there, and what do y'all take from this article, Brother, Brother Jabari and then Brother Moses? Anytime I hear of a scenario like this, I think of how Stephen King once penned a quote saying that fiction is the truth wrapped inside a lie. And I say I think of this because one thing we can say we've noticed in terms of popular media, there have been a number of movies which people have come up with all kinds of devastating means of torturing people. And yet it's interesting given um, the intelligence relationship with Hollywood, how a lot of these fictional, what were once fictional scenarios are being played out in real life. We've seen scenarios where people who were considered bad seed were in prisons and they were basically um, put in a position where they were going to wither away into nothing. So we got to understand that there's nothing too low or nothing too sensitive that these people won't use to achieve their aims. And that's what we're seeing in terms of this kind of treatment, in terms of this severe form of isolation where he doesn't even have access to those things he can use to fight his cause. They're trying to purposely put him in a weakened state because that will um, make it that much easier to just go ahead and put him away for good if he doesn't have any kind of way to reasonably form a defense. Because it's not about being fair. It's about using any means necessary for them to achieve their dubious aims. Brother Moses, your response? Yeah, well, we know that... um, uh, Assad is being persecuted because he did a public service in terms of WikiLeaks and the, and the information that was put out uh, uh, by Chelsea Manning and Eric Snowden and various other people. Uh, um, and um, they're trying to isolate him uh, uh, and uh, cut him off from the from the rest of the world. And you know they want to ex, 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 expedite ex, expedite him to the U.S. and try him. Um, interesting enough, uh, Trump was on the campaign trail. He was talking at one point. He was talking about how he loved WikiLeaks, and so you know this is a, a, a question of opportunism, uh, um, and. Uh, there is no real standard of justice. Uh, uh, it's just opportunism and, and uh, uh, a desire to to, to persecute him uh, 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 for some trumped up charges. Uh, uh, as and some some um, Congress people have been calling for. Him to calling for his head more or less, you know. And so I don't know. Uh, WikiLeaks and has done a service to uh, to the people in terms of the information that we were made available, and uh, and we have to defend Julian Assad. Thank you. You talk about standing of justice. You know, we're gonna come back to that. Well, let's go back to that call. Call of four seven two seven. Uh, your response to what you have heard so far dealing with this issue of Julius Assange, call it four seven. Yeah, I think everybody's hitting it on the head. Uh, the, the thing I would add is uh, gatekeeping and and how important that is uh, to keep things the way that they they are. If you're 
the so-called elite and power in a society. So the things that can, that cannot be printed, those are filtered through your gatekeeping system. That's why, you know, you see some media companies lose money every year or are never profitable, but somehow they, they keep rolling because the, the people who own those things know how important information is and limiting conversations is. So Washington Post or whatever, you got gatekeepers there. You, you submit your stuff as a journalist. They go over it. If you go too far into the halls of power, uh, your story doesn't get run, and then eventually you learn uh, what should be submitted and what should not be submitted. So when you start talking about these outliers, these you know new ways of, of conveying information, the Assange's, the WikiLeaks, or whoever, they can't control that. So immediately they try to make a, a an example out of somebody who they feel goes too far and has posted something that should not be known. Uh, well, you look at, uh, you know, formerly Bradley Manning, now Chelsea Manning, what the hell did they do to him uh, for him to to become who he is now? And I think they just locked him up now because they wanted him to speak against uh, Assange and WikiLeaks or testify. There was some issue they had with him uh, where they wanted him to be involved. He refused. Well, she refused, and they locked, locked her up. So I, I think no, over, overall this comes down to, power, trying to limit information, control how conversations are had. So if you don't know about this whole swath of information and you're having a conversation on their terms, uh, it, it's just like when we talk to brothers and sisters about the global system that we're, we're dealing with right now. If you don't know, you know, if you haven't read, you know, the, the typical stuff that most of us read when we were young and, and then added on and added on and added on, if you don't know any of that, then that stuff sounds crazy. So I, I think it's the same approach when you look at something like this, from Manning to WikiLeaks to them going after whistleblowers now, like period, they're prosecuting whistleblowers. So this this goes into that. But, yeah, this this is a, this is an empire that's in decline, and I think we all can see it. And the, the, more, the more close it gets, uh, the more authoritarian they'll become. So, the, you know, this is no surprise. You know, panelists, uh, this article clearly reflects the reality when King made a statement, a threat of injustice anywhere is a threat of justice everywhere. And, you know, I thought it would be interesting that it talks about, uh, it talks about the power of the U.S., the power of the U.S. in terms of where you can take other nationals and make them act and function on their behalf as if, they are representing their interests and not the interests of their own citizenship. Panelists, can you speak to that phenomenon as relates to this article? Because the proof is he's not guilty of anything. He has not violated anything. The United Nations said all the rights that he entitled to are privileged to him, but yet he can't have them because of the power of the U.S. But when you look at in Australia, they have representatives. They refuse to do what is necessary to allow this man to function as a free man. Panelists, speak to that issue of U.S. and their influence and how they make other foreign nationals to acquiesce to their interests. Ashley, uh, this is something that Nkrumah alluded to uh, in, uh, in, in his book, Neocolonialism, which is why he was so heavily criticized uh, for it. Because the U.S. being the, the, the number one superpower in the world, they can exert 
exert influence over other countries. And it's known as extraterritoriality. And uh, and uh, they can actually make other nations follow U.S. dictates. And uh, and it uh, and it does that primarily with Western Europe and Israel. And uh, uh, let's see, it it, uh, it forces other countries, uh, you know, to follow U.S. Uh, you know uh, guidelines and dictates. And uh, and you can see it all over Africa. And uh, any country that refuses to do that, like Cuba, Venezuela, Nicaragua, uh, Korea, then they that that then that they, they're labeled as either uh, either dictatorships or evil uh, or evil countries. And uh, and uh, that is something uh, that that's the danger of having a superpower like the U.S. being able to dictate to the world uh, what they uh, you know what their policy should be. And uh, Assange is an example of that because he has not committed any crimes in Australia or Britain. Also, there is there, there is the elephant in the room, Brother Africa, and that is that you ask this kind of cohesion that exists among the Western states. Well, we can't underscore the importance of transfer racism. I mean, that is that is a a a a, 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 a big factor in terms of their willingness to be complicit in U.S. U.S. crimes around the world. Uh, to the extent that they identify with uh, the U.S. in the sense that they feel that uh, the control of the world resources and for the world should be white males, and so therefore they have that interest in, in heart. So therefore it's easy for them to go along with the U.S. dictates because they see this expression or manifestation of increased, uh, increased power for themselves as white, as white men. Uh, I think also we have to keep in mind, uh, when we talk about um, you know, media control, there's been a large consolidation of the media, you know, is even from 1983. Keep in mind, by 1983, there was like 50 corporations that controlled all media. Now, today we just got six six corporations, Time Warner, Walt Disney, Viacom, News Corp, which is owned by Robert Murdoch, NBC Universal, CBS Corp. They, they have relationships not only in terms of, you know, uh, control of here in America, but they have uh, relationships with other media, media centers around the world. They also have controlling interests in terms of a lot of investments in terms of medias around the world. And so, therefore, media tend to be in lockstep in, lock in terms of, you know, uh, you know whatever the U.S. puts it out. In other words, if you're a politician and, and, and if you don't follow suit, you don't do exactly what I say. If you're in Germany, you say, well, listen, I'm going to, I'm going to trade with Iran because I need it for my people. Well, their thing is to utilize the media to go after the leadership in Germany to punish them and make them fall in line. Now, unfortunately, Germany is strong enough to say, you know, to hell with you. I'm going to do my thing because I got to take care of my people. And so Germany is strong enough. But Germany is exceptional. Most of Europe can't afford that because their, economic, their economics are in, in dire strait. And so, therefore, they, they, have to, they have to essentially give in to black, to black males. And so, therefore, we got to say the control in terms of media, in terms of ability, in terms of not only uh, you know, setting people apart in terms for, for, for be, to be disenfranchised, but in fact, uh, create, create the perception that these people are somehow uh, enemy to the people in their own countries in terms of advancement. 
So this is this is the, the, how complex it is in terms of you know uh, uh, the U.S. control you know uh, of you know of, of the world. And so it's not hard to figure out when, particularly when you talk about racism, why is it that these Western states keep on falling in line as opposed to saying, listen, I'm not going to play that game because it's unjust, it's not fair, it's not it's immoral. They fall in line simply because they feel that it's in their interest to do so. So that's a big part of a part of why they do what they do. So we can't underscore the, the role of uh, of media. Okay, panelists, we're going to have to stop right now. We will continue the discussion next week as we will continue part two on a state of being. And right now what we're going to do is we're going to pause for the calls when we come back. We have a special guest, our brother Joe Lombardo. He will be on. We'll be talking about the National Anti-March Mobilization, No to NATO, No War in Venezuela, and Yes to Peace. Uh, Brother Joe just came back from Venezuela. We will have his perspective and get a sense of what's going on in Venezuela. But more important, we're going to talk a little bit about uh, what can we expect for this weekend on March the 30th, the big rally in Washington, D.C., as well as they have the demonstration on April 4th. We'll talk about these upcoming events with Brother Joe Lombardo when we come back. We'll pause for this cause. You are listening to Africa on the Moon. We'll be right back. Yeah. 
You may fool the people some of the time, but you can't fool them all the time. We'd like to welcome our special guest, Joe Lombardo, to Africa on the Move. You just understand, Joe, you just came back from Venezuela. Now, we'd like to welcome you, and Brother Marley said you can fool the people some of the time, you can't fool them all the time. Now, based on being in Venezuela, can you tell our people the reality? What's going on in Venezuela, Brother Joe? Well, Venezuelans are having some problems, uh, basically caused by the United States. The United States has imposed uh, sanctions on the um, uh, people of uh, Venezuela. They include economic sanctions, so hundreds of billions of dollars of Venezuelan money, which is in foreign banks, has been frozen, and they can't get access to it. Um, the sanctions take on many, many other uh, areas, such as they can't get medicine into the country, which is really a crime against humanity. Some countries, such as Russia and India and others, are helping them out um, with some of this stuff, but uh, it severely limits the supplies uh, that they need. There's also been um, terrorist attacks that have gone on through armed groups financed by the United States and armed by the United States. And uh, there's a continual threat of uh, military attack on Venezuela. So this requires them to put a lot of resources into mobilizing their military, into arming people, which they are doing. They, are, they have a militia, which is bigger than their army and bigger than the U.S. Army. And uh, they're preparing to defend their country if they need to. And that's the reality on the ground in Venezuela. You hear a lot on the U.S. media, which is not true, uh, that there is a crisis going on. Pretty much people in the streets are very calm. Even during the blackout, which was now clearly demonstrated was caused by the United States, um, uh, there was, we saw no looting. People were very calm. They came down to the streets. They helped out each other. We were there and lived with them through that um, several days of a uh, a blackout, and it was an interesting and important experience for us to witness. Um, Joe, how would you describe the whole demeanor, mannerism, uh, attitude, uh, uh, perspective on how President Maduro is dealing with his people as the president and as the leader for his people? How do you view the behavior and role of, of the leadership of President Maduro at this point in time? Well, I think it's exemplary. Um, while we were down there, we had a 13-person thir delegation from the United States and a couple of people from Canada. Um, and uh, he recognized that we were an anti-war demonstration and that anti-war delegation and did everything he could to um, help uh, us um, while we were in Venezuela, including having a 90-minute, a, um, a an hour-and-a-half um um, meeting with uh, Maduro, and he's being calm about it. You know, he showed us some tweets he got, uh, one from um, uh, uh, um, uh, Bolton, another one from um, uh, that weird uh, guy down in Florida, whose name is escaping me now, um, the, the uh, senator from Florida who is yeah, leading um, a lot of it. Uh, what's his name? Yeah. Go ahead. Yeah, 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 he's a Gasana. And he um, uh, he got a tweet from him, which he showed us while we were in the meeting, and basically it was a picture of Gaddafi dead. 
So that was a threat. This is what's going to happen to you. You got another tweet. I said from Bolton, but I didn't mean Bolton. I meant um, uh, the um, other guy. <laughs> uh, names are not coming to me right now. Um, but uh, he he basically had a calmer tweet from him where he said, we would like you to do something like what happened in Nicaragua, where you give up your power for a period of time, and maybe in a few years there can be another election and you can come back. So he he took these things in stride and said, of course I'm not going to do that. But these are threats. They're saying, the U.S. is saying to him, we're going to kill you. We're going to do what we did uh, to Gaddafi in, in Libya um, unless uh, you turn over your government to the right-wing forces who we've decided should should run your government. And that means turning back the oil, which is now nationalized and supports programs for the people throughout the country, um, to private ownership, where the U.S. corporations and banks, U.S. oil companies and banks can dominate the Venezuela oil. And I don't think the Venezuelan people or the Venezuelan government under Maduro um, would ever consider anything like that. They're ready to fight against the United States if it's necessary. You know, Joe, before we go into um, discussing the importance of this upcoming national anti-war mobilization event that will take place on the 30th, and March 30th in Washington, D.C., and they also have another event on April 4th, before we talk about the event, I would like for you, since we're talking about U.S. foreign policy, which you know has a history of being very racist, can you talk a little bit about the people and the, and the makeup of the Venezuelan population, what it's comprised of, and who I'll be really dealing with in terms of trying to give Venezuela a face? Yeah, well, uh, what's really happening in, in Venezuela is there's a class war and there's a race war that's going on. The majority of the people of Venezuela um, are... Uh, are black. Uh, they either are Afro-Venezuelans or some combination of Afro-Venezuelans and, Mosti- and uh, the um, indigenous population. They call them mestizos. And the shades of people's color are what we would consider black in the United States, and that is the majority. And that is also the percentage of the population, the people in the population who were left out of everything in the past. For instance, we were in um, a community in um, Caracas that is uh, 1.5 million people strong um, that um, up until uh, Chavez came into power in 1999, um, uh, it wasn't even on the map. It wasn't even considered part of Caracas because what happened is from the countryside and so forth, as the economy was deteriorating, people moved to the cities to try to look for jobs or some way to survive. And on the periphery of the city, they made these basically shanty towns. And what Chavez and Maduro have done is they replaced um, what was basically tin shack type living with high-rise apartments. In fact, they've made since um, 19 uh, since 2016 um, with the help of China. They've made um, uh, uh, 2.5 million high-rise apartment units, moved 2.5 million families into these. Uh, They intend to have 3 million such apartment units by the end of the year. And they built roads and they built sewers and and water lines and they registered these people to vote and took a 
totally disenfranchised part of the population, which was largely black, and um, uh, started treating them like they were part of the society. And the upper classes have always been the, the very white parts of the population, like this guy Guaido that we wa the U.S. wants to recognize as the president that nobody voted for. Um, these people often don't call themselves Venezuelans. They call themselves Spanish. Um, and uh, it, it's a, a very a strange kind of situation. They look almost different than the people you see on the streets. And these are the people that want to become the leaders and have been in the past the leaders until Chavez uh, came in and started the whole uh, Bolivarian revolution. Um, so that's the reality. It's a, a class war and it's a race war that's going on there. And when you talk to the different people, when you talk to the people that support the process and support Maduro, they always talk about how the whole society has been uplifted. You know, you get on subway trains, they don't cost you anything because they want people to be able to travel. Um, uh, 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 they have apartments that everybody eats. The people do not look hungry, despite what you hear in the United States. They look well-fed and well-dressed because they ensure that everybody's going to get the basic things they need in life, like medical care, education, and food. Um, so when you talk to them, they talk about how the whole society has been uplifted, and they talk in the terms of we and the community and the people. When you talk to people in the opposition, it says, oh, we don't have any opportunity. We don't, you know, we can't get ahead. We want to go to the United States where there's unlimited opportunity. And they talk in terms of themselves and, and just what's important for themselves and don't have a community outlook. And that's really the different consciousness between people who are think, so, thinking socially, like socialists, and people who are thinking individually, like capitalists. And that's the ideological uh, situation and struggle that's going on within that country right now. Hey, Joe, on March 30th in Washington, D.C., there will be a national anti-mobilization uh, event, which with the theme is No to NATO, No War on Venezuela, Yes to Peace. Why is this event important? Well, um, NATO is coming to Washington, D.C., for a meeting on April 4th. First of all, April 4th is the um, anniversary of the assassination of Martin Luther King. And it also is the anniversary one year prior to his assassination of his famous speech called Beyond Vietnam that took place at Riverside Church in New York, where he came out definitively against the war in Vietnam. Um, and he was someone who fought for peace. Um, and so it is a, an incredible slap in the face that is on that day that NATO, which is uh, um, an organization that for 70 years has brought us war to this world, um, is going to have their meeting. So we decided to have a demonstration, um, which is against uh, NATO war and racism. And we decided to do it on Saturday, the Saturday prior to April 4th. But there are other activities from Saturday on right through April 4th. Black Alliance for Peace will be holding a meeting on April 4th, which is also their second anniversary. There will be a demonstration on April 4th also. But the main demonstration will be Saturday, and people are mobilizing from throughout the East Coast to come and protest uh, NATO. Now, 
um, well, that, that was the original call to be against the NATO folks coming to D.C. Once uh, the coup attempts started happening and the situation in Venezuela heated up, we understood that we had to include as a central demand of that demonstration hands off Venezuela. So it will be a joint anti-NATO um, demonstration and a hands off Venezuela demonstration. Now, NATO is moving into Latin America and Colombia, which borders kind of way we lost Joe we'll do see if he call back we'll tell you he call back panelists uh, well, let's talk a little bit about some of the things he had to say this whole question of Venezuela and this misconception of what they've been saying in media about Venezuela and this upcoming event uh, Brother Anthony uh, when we look at this role of this um, role in the media how they have presented uh, Venezuela Based upon the report we got from Joe, your response to it? Yes. Um, I found it interesting. He, he put forth a lot of information that has not appeared in the mainstream media at all. As a matter of fact, uh, the, the mainstream media in the U.S. Uh, portrays Juan Guaido as, uh, as the president of Venezuela. And uh, they still run that line, and uh, it's completely false. And uh, you have a situation in Venezuela where the people are trying to hold on to the gains of the Bolivarian Revolution. And they're trying to maintain their independence and sovereignty under very difficult circumstances in which they do not have access to their own resources because of U.S. policy. uh, Venezuela uh, has enough to take care of, uh, of its immediate needs, but because of this uh, blockade, it, it, it cannot use, uh, it, uh, uh, its earnings to benefit its people. And that is a major contradiction why we must uh, be against uh, uh, U.S. intervention in Venezuela and, uh, and have adding Colombia and Brazil as members of NATO is an effort to intensify uh, U.S. nomination over uh, South and Central America. Brother Haki, uh, based upon what you heard from um, Brother Joe, matter of fact, I think we got Brother Joe back. Brother Joe, welcome back. Some kind of I'm we sorry, I don't off. know what happened. I guess we got cut off. Yeah, it happens like this sometimes, but you can finish your, your, your thoughts on... So yeah, well, I just want to say if, if folks from if folks from R- Richmond want to come to the action, they can contact, uh, um, uh, get information and transportation information through the uh, Virginia Defenders, which is their phone number is 804-644-5834, or they can contact UNAC through our website, which is UNACPeace. Dot org u n a c p e a c e dot org 
And, Joe, before we have panelists, have a couple of questions or responses you maybe would like to ask you. Can you, um, sure. again, talk a little bit about what is UNAC and what is your role in UNAC? Well, UNAC is the United National Anti-War Coalition. It's a coalition of about 100 peace, uh, 160 peace and justice organizations. We're trying to pull together the movement so we can coordinate activity and build the movement as, as big as possible. And I am one of the co-coordinators of that organization. Okay, thank you. Let's go to our panelists. Brother Haki, your response to some of the things you have heard just now from a report back from Venezuela and this whole issue of revival should support the upcoming events on the 30th and the 4th that would take place in Washington, Washington D.C. Yeah, uh, just a, a quick question for the brother. Um, you know, one of the things, you know, Citibank is in the process of uh, stealing money, actually it's gold, Venezuelan gold, to the tune of $1.3 billion. Uh, in terms of criminality or just in terms of uh, them being to get, get away with that, what is your view in terms of um, the, the likelihood or probability they actually be able to get away with stealing any uh, Venezuelan gold? Yeah, well, most of the Venezuelan gold is actually in the Bank of London, and that's where the $1.3 billion in Venezuelan gold. Venezuela has the most oil reserves of any country in the world and the third most gold reserves of any country in the world. But Citibank has been the bank where in the United States where Venezuela has had most of its money because the Citgo um, oil companies, the uh, gas stations are owned by Venezuela and they also have some refinery capacity in the United States. And that money was all in those banks and uh, that bank and Citibank and Citibank just froze the funds, and the U.S. is now trying to give it to this opposition person called Guaido, who nobody ever voted for, and who just stood up in front of a microphone and declared himself um, uh, president, and the U.S. recognized him immediately, and is giving a lot of funds of the Venezuelan funds to them, and it's stealing. But it's even worse than that, because, um, because of the sanctions, Venezuela can't um, uh, draw on checks that are written to any bank um, that uh, is in any of the countries that are recognizing the sanctions. So it can't trade with, with, with those countries, and it can't write a check to them because uh, the banks wouldn't cash their check. So it's impossible, it's impossible to have financial transactions with companies or governments uh, that are under these sanctions um, uh, you know, regulation. So it's becoming very, very difficult for, uh, economically for Venezuela, which should be one of the richest countries in the world, but the United States is stealing that wealth from them. The United States feels it has the right to just cancel debts and steal money from countries like Venezuela, but let any other country try to cancel the U.S. debt, and they will be invaded before um, you could blink your eye. So it, it is it is thievery. It it is um, criminality. What the United States is doing. Brother Moses, question or comment? I'm sorry, I didn't hear that. No, I'm saying, Brother Moses, you have any comment? Oh, yeah, yeah. I think it's um it's very interesting that uh uh. The gold is is uh, 
it's in other countries and and uh, um Venezuela is is not able to uh get sovereignty over its resources. Uh the US is in this is this flunkies uh uh sabotage in the economy of Venezuela and and uh, I think that's a shame. Uh uh I, I hope the demonstration will be a success uh, uh, that a lot of people will show up and, uh, and make the make the case for hands-off Venezuela. And, and I just hope things will work out. Uh, that's all I have to say right now. All right, well, Brother Anthony, thank you, Brother Anthony, question or comment? Yes. Um, what's being done in order to encourage, um, you know, uh, a heavy turnout at uh, uh, at these demonstrations? Unfortunately, a lot of people uh, tend to believe everything that's put out by the U.S. media. And um, there's been very little information put out about these demonstrations in the mainstream media against, uh, you know, the the NATO meeting for obvious reasons. But uh, what is being done in order to educate people on why they should support the effort to to, to um, say no to NATO and to get the U.S. out of Venezuela? Well, that is the big problem, and that's the big question. Um, uh, the U.S. media, in my opinion, the corporate media, is a more controlled media uh, than at any time during my lifetime. Um, and they basically tend to reflect, like, the Republican Party's position or the Democratic Party's position. Um, however, both of them are pro-war today. There's no wing of the Democratic Party that's anti-war like there used to be. Uh, to some extent, you know, for their own reasons or for whatever. So you're seeing very, very few voices within the Democratic Party that are opposing um, what's going on in Venezuela. Even the people that consider themselves the most liberal by Bernie like Bernie Sanders, says, well, we shouldn't invade Venezuela. But Maduro is a dictator and he's corrupt. And look at how terrible the economy is because of his... Um, corrupt regime. But, you know, the economy is not in bad shape um, due to uh, any actions that the Maduro government has done. In fact, for the poor people, it's in the best shape that it ever has been. But the economy is in bad shape because of the economic sanctions and the economic warfare of the United States. And so it is very difficult. And, you know, even discussing with some liberals and I come from basically a progressive family, and but most of them are not activists to the extent that I am. So my sister argues, for instance, with some of her friends who consider themselves progressive and on just these issues, you know, oh, the Venezuelan people don't like him, and uh, he's a dictator and all, all things like this. The only dictator that would arm his own population, who every... Uh, week has these mass mobilizations where millions of people pour out into the streets. Um, you know, he's the only dictator that was elected by a higher percentage of the population voting than voted in 
the U.S. last election, and he got 80, he got close to 70 percent of the vote. He had two, three other candidates running <clears throat> against him, and he won overwhelmingly. There's no dictatorship that's going on in, in Venezuela, and there's also no suppression of the opposition and no suppression of, of uh, the opposition media. Um, so uh, it's very, very difficult to organize people, and it's difficult to organize people for anti-war issues right now. Um, I think there was a break in the political movement from back in the period of the 60s and 70s where we had the Black Panthers and the whole politicalization and the growth of the left in general. And then there was like a generation that where that didn't happen. And now uh, since uh, Iraq and so forth, there's people that are starting to think politically again and youth are starting to come into the movement for the first time again. But that break caused a problem. And so when people um, uh, become active around issues, they come active around their immediate issues. And there are so many immediate issues, from cop killing or uh, job issues or so many immediate issues. And it's very difficult to help to make the connection between those issues and the international issues. And that's the job of the anti-war movement. So it's a slow process to grow the anti-war movement, but an essential process. So we won't have a demonstration the size of the big mass mobilizations that we used to have in the past, but it will be a step forward. And we need people that have the political consciousness and understanding the issue, international context of so many of the issues between the wars at home and the wars abroad that um, to come out and to bring as many people as we can until we can get over that threshold and really have a movement that can once again start bringing masses of people out into the streets and start building a real progressive left in the United States. And so this demonstration is a step in that process. We've been organizing with various groups. We've had a coordinating committee, which includes almost all the, the um, anti-war organizations and others um, in the country. And hopefully by working together, and doing what we can through social media and alternative media and flyering and being out in the streets and in the communities, we can break through some of the propaganda and the blackout that uh, the corporate media tries to do. And we can start once again to build a movement that's uh, absolutely needed in, in the United States. I hope that answers your question. <laughs> it does. Thanks. Okay, caller four seven two seven. Your question or comment? Well, good information. The only thing I would ask, yeah, the only thing I would ask is uh, if you heard the program the Intercept did uh, with the Venezuelan official. Uh, it was pretty informative, pretty interesting. Uh, I wondered if he heard that and what he thought of it. If he did, uh, I didn't hear it. But if you let me know something that he said, I can probably respond to it. Uh, well, mostly he was like he was going over uh, the whole process of them saying that the election was fraudulent and all of the you know the other smears that they were using. He was kind of giving clarity on those things, and they came, they kind of gave him a wide berth. So he was basically trying to educate Americans on you know what's been going on in Venezuela. So it, I just I found it interesting. Shared it a lot. So uh, well, check it out if you think it might be worth. Something. Yeah. I will. I'll take a look. But the Venezuelan elections are some of the most democratic elections anywhere in the world. Jimmy Carter Center 
I observed them and, and have made these same, similar comments. They, uh, unlike in this country where they try to suppress vote, voting, they try to get maximum voting in their country. And in, especially in the poor neighborhoods, they have an election commission that goes door to door to try to register everybody they can. And they have an electronic voting system, but with a paper backup. And the votes are counted live on TV in front of everybody. And any party can call for a recount at any time if uh, it's needed. But they have a whole process where they take the paper backup and they take the machine count and they um, uh, uh, do randomly picks throughout all the machines and all the districts throughout the country, and then they match them up and see how well um, they match up. And basically, in this way, um, show that they are having uh, a very uh, democratic election. They also don't have their elections on a Tuesday or something like that, like we do, where people are working. They have it on a Sunday, uh, um, where people are, are off and people are, are able to um, vote. They've vastly increased the number of machines, of voting machines and voting polling places throughout the country, especially in the poorer neighborhoods. So unlike what we saw, especially in the black community in the United States, where there were long lines because they limited the number of polling places um, uh, in these communities as a way of suppressing the vote, um, uh, they didn't have that kind of situation in, in Venezuela. They did what they could to get everybody to vote, and they voted overwhelmingly for Maduro, almost 70%. And you can understand why some people don't vote for Maduro. Um, some people are very angry that most of the resources have gone to the poor and the people who have dis been disenfranchised in the past. So the upper classes and the upper middle classes resent that. Um, but also the sanctions and the economic warfare that has been going on has created hardship for people. And some people just want to say, mm -hmm. You know, I, we've had enough. Let's end it, uh, you know. So these, this is the reason that people form the opposition and don't vote for someone like Maduro. But they've been very democratic elections. And if you talk to people in the opposition, they will tell you exactly the opposite. But by all the international observers, and many people from this country, um, people I know, people that work with UNAC, Jamal Baraka, um, uh, um, uh, was one of the observers that was down there during their last elections. Um, uh, so, you know, this, this is a, um, a situation that um, uh, is not, not telling the truth like much of the media in the United States in general. Hey, Joe, I got two particular questions, and then we have to bring it to a closing. Can you talk okay. a little bit about Venezuela and the concept of there was strategy by, by the U.S. in terms of a attack against Venezuela will also have an impact on the Alba countries and other countries around the world. Can you talk about that aspect, how this impact yeah. the attack on Venezuela will have an impact on Cuba, Bolivia, Haiti, yes. even Africa? Can you talk a little bit about that? Yep. Well, first of all, um, uh, Bolton said – well, first of all, Bolton and Trump have both said publicly – that what they want out of Venezuela is the oil. Second of all, they both said, or, or, or um, Bolton has said, well, Venezuela is first, Nicaragua is second, and Cuba is third. They want to get rid of any progressive 
policies and experiments that are happening anywhere around the world. And plus, they want the oil to surround the bigger countries that they want to go after eventually, like Russia and China, um, and uh, limit their resources so that, uh, you know, the U.S. can get advantage. But, you know, Venezuela is different than Vietnam, and it's different than Iraq. Those countries are on the other side of the world. Venezuela is very close, and there's been a whole history of U.S. intervention in Latin America. There's very few countries in Latin America that the United States hasn't um, orchestrated a coup or invaded in the past. And so there's a consciousness among all the people in Latin America, and even the right-wing countries, don't want to see a U.S. invasion because they know it will be a de- have a destabilizing effect in their own country. And so they've, while they've supported the U.S. up to a point, they will not support a military intervention in Venezuela. If a, Venezuela, if a military intervention happens, it is likely the entire area will, could go up in flames, and the United States could lose a lot more than um, just, it, 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 um, uh, just Venezuela. But there's another piece. You know, during the Vietnam War, during the Iraq War, there weren't real populations in the United States of Vietnamese and Iraqis. They came after those wars, and they were usually the people that collaborated with the United States and had right-wing policies. But there's a gigantic and growing and politicized Latin American population, Puerto Rican, Mexican, Dominican, Venezuelan, Colombian uh, um, population in the United States. And so it threatens that these people could rise up and rebel even within the belly of the beast, even within the United States. So if the United States pushes in the direction that Bolton and Trump and Pompeo want to push, it is possible that an anti-war movement and a left could be built in this country, um, and there could be uh, uh, the entire region, North, uh, South America and North America, can um, uh, go into conflict in ways that we haven't seen before. Um, and I, I think that's a very important piece of the calculation right now. And can you talk about, is there a collaboration or what is the relationship between the anti-war movement, anti-NATO movement in the U.S., and the anti-war, anti-NATO movement in Europe? Is there a collaboration? Um, what is the relationship? Yeah, there's a lot. We will have a lot of people from various countries coming to the demonstration on Saturday. We will have a legislator from the left party in Germany, so someone from the German legislator will be a legislation a legislator will be here someone from the parliament in Greece will be here both of them will speak a two-time um, member of the congress in the Philippines will be here a member of the legislator legislation legislate legis, I can't say the word legislature from um Nepal um if he can get into the country will be here also it's not clear whether the Filipino will get into the country also. And there will also be people from various Latin American countries that are coming up, from Brazil and, and other countries. We have Venezuelan speakers. Uh, we will have a Haitian speaker because there's a whole history of the relationship between Venezuela and Haiti. And uh, there, there was some activity in Haiti around um, uh, uh, this uh, attacks on Venezuela. And so we will have a Haitian speaker also. So 
um, really the the entire global south and, and entire third world countries could be affected by in one way or another, and they, uh, and we can see this happening in Europe. There's been two groups that have been mainly organized against NATO. One is called the No to War, No to NATO group. The other is called the World Peace Council. Both of them will be in Washington, D.C., and will be holding conferences and joining the demonstration. And we know of about 75 people from Europe, um, South America, and other um, countries that will be in, in D.C. Um, uh, during that period and organizing against NATO. Hey, Joe, I know the last question, but briefly, has there been any discussion in the context when we talk about this anti-NATO, anti-war stuff, has there been any discussion in terms of NATO role in AFRICON and its impact on Africa or African countries, like Zimbabwe, the sanctions that's going on there, and other countries? Yes. Has there been any discussion in the yeah. framework of that movement, and how would that be represented at this particular march? Because we notice normally when you look at anti-war movements in the United States, the communities that are most affected by it, they seem to have the least representation at the, you know, at, at these events. So what's, what are we doing to try to change the reality? Well, we're doing everything we can. We held a conference in Dublin, Ireland, actually, in November, um, and we had a, a panel specifically on Africa, which was like a featured panel that talked about AFRICOM. And um, AFRICOM is headquartered, actually, in Germany, but uh, it has shown a big, big growth in um, uh, uh, of um, activity in Africa. Some people became aware of it when we saw some U.S. troops were killed in Niger, and you know we didn't even people didn't even know there were U.S. troops in in Africa. But <laughs> excuse me, there is a growing number. Uh, the role that the U.S. has played in in the mass destruction that has gone on in uh, places um, uh, like the uh, Democratic Republic of the Congo and Rwanda is a real history that a lot of people don't know. But some of the groups that have been working with us um, are the um, uh, Friends of the Congo, um, in particular um, uh, uh, Paul Pumphrey and, and Maurice Carney, who really explain that well, and they'll be speaking at some of our activity the Black Alliance for Peace has done a lot in trying to um, uh, explain that history. And more and more, uh, the anti-war movement and even the white anti-war movement is starting to understand uh, that role and, and uh, publicizing. And it is very important in terms of bringing, um, uh, of making connections with the Afri African-American community and um uh, with the anti-war movement and with the struggles that are going on uh, in Africa. So more and more we are uh, trying to do that, and that will come out in some of these uh, uh, meetings and demonstrations that we will have in, in, in uh, D.C. Yeah, because, you know, like, for example, you know there are some major um, issues going on being led by France and Cameroon, um, where the people have been yes. recruited. And I've yes. heard little has been said by these, these movements and these media. But anyway, Joe, child, we are done. What I would ask you to do is um, give our listening, listening audience to find a take on why they should come to your event and how they can find out more information. Great. Thank you very much, Lee, for inviting me. And I hope I can see you guys and others in, in D.C. on Saturday. 
All right. We thank you. That was Joe Lobato giving him perspective on his recent trip back from Venezuela and is trying to explain to you the importance of coming out to this event March the 30th, which will be at Lafayette Park in Washington, D.C. It starts at 1 p.m. Um, right now, what we're going to do, we're going to have to um, come to our closing for the night, so we're going to ask each one of our panelists to give us their final thoughts for the night, and after they have done that, we'll play some liberation movement, and we'll leave you with some words, some wisdom from Brother Kwame Ture. So we'll start with Brother Moses, your final thoughts for the night, Brother Moses. Yes, um I'm, I'm hoping that the demonstration will be a success. We need we need demonstrations uh, um, around these issues, and uh, um, I hope that, um, that that people will turn out and it will be a success. I'll leave it there. Thank you. Okay, thank you, Brother Moses. Uh, we are going to you see our brother um, Joe. You'll find his thoughts for the day, Brother Joe. Uh, me? Well, yes. uh, I agree with um, uh, what we just heard. Uh, I'm putting all my effort into building this action. Um, and, uh, you know, when we were down in Venezuela, it was made very clear to us from the president of the country all the way down to the people we met in the streets that uh, uh, what Che Guevara said is very true. We are in the belly of the beast. Uh, we have a unique role to play in ending U.S. imperialism and uh, stopping an attack on Venezuela. And um, that's our not just our role, but our obligation. So I hope we can live up to our obligation. Thank you, Brother Joe Lombardo. Next, we'll go to Call of 4727. You'll find it to us for tonight. Call of 4727. Uh, Stay focused, uh, continue to learn, and also continue to act on uh, the things that you do learn. Uh, it, it's really easy to isolate yourself and become frustrated uh, when you're dealing with, you know, something as large as what <laughs> we're actually dealing with globally. Uh, but uh, there's only one way, and that's forward. So salute to all y'all. Thanks for letting me on your show. Thank you, Colin, for your contribution to today's program. Brother Hackey, your final thoughts for tonight. Well, African Awareness Association will travel the road to liberation and freedom to Cuba. We'll be going to Guantanamo, Santiago de Cuba, and Havana. This trip takes place July 24th, July 31st. For more information, we ask you to call us at 202-714-9435 or email us at African Awareness Association, all one word, number two at gmail.com. That's African Awareness Association, number two at gmail.com. And uh, we encourage you to go and see yourself firsthand the role that institutions play in terms of shaping the, the lives of the people. Well, I haven't said that. Let me just say that, as always, Brother Africa, I encourage people, you know, to unravel the matrix. Uh, one thing is clear. Uh, we're in the throes of history, and, uh, you know, whether we like it or not, you know, certain things just destined to happen. And the question is, what is our response going to be? We can do nothing, or we can actively confront whatever it is that's coming at us. But one thing's for sure, we have to act. And Brother Africa, and to the panel, you all have a good night. Thank you, Brother Kaki, for your contribution to today's program. And we now go to Brother Anthony. Brother Anthony, your final thoughts for tonight. My final thought for tonight is that we must organize and we must uh, unite 
with our brothers and sisters around the world that are struggling against a common enemy. And we can only do that effectively if we are organized. And uh, for more information about the All-African People's Revolutionary Party and our paper uh, uh, expressing the the necessity of solidarity with the the struggle of the people of Venezuela, please visit our website at www.a-aprp-gc.org. Thank you, Brother Anthony. Thank you, the panelists. Thank you, the guests that was here tonight. And thank all the listening audience who allowed us to come to their home to speak truth to power. And we will continue discussion next week, A State of Being, Part 2. And like we stated earlier, without information, you cannot thank, and without organization, you cannot thank clearly. We encourage you to join an organization that is fighting for the liberation of your people and for humanity. Please come out and support the events. Find out more about these organizations. Help these organizations by joining them. By doing that, you'll make them stronger, and you put them in a better position to transform humanity to be a better humanity. So right now, we're going to peace out with the music, Obama, and then we're ending with some statements by Brother Kwame Ture talking about lessons from the 60s, 70s, and 80s. We'll see you next week. Here's the Obama Nation. We thank you for allowing us to come to your homes. That's his real name, Loki. Loki is not his real name, surprisingly enough. It's an important line there. I'm all about peace and love. Yeah. Okay. They're calling him a terrorist. Okay. One nation in the world has over a thousand military bases. Can you guess who? It's. Um, Let me give you a hint. Cutter. It is not Luxembourg. It's not just Muslims that that oppose your imperialism. He's going to tell you who it is. Lumumba was democracy, Mosaddegh, Allende. There you go. Okay, so so this is the rapper. All right, that mm-hmm. is music. Bust a beat for me. Right? All right, sure. Glenn Beck is a racist, got the strip with getting bomb, Obama didn't say shit. After you divorce yourself from the right wing propaganda campaign, it's all simple and plain. America could stand the game, your president got an African name. Now who you gon' blame when they dropped the bombs out of them planes? Using depleted uranium, babies looking like two-headed aliens. Follow the money trail that leads to the criminal, and nothing subliminal to it. That's how they do it, see the game they run. Give a fuck who's cunning, articulate and handsome. Afghanistan held for ransom by the hand of this black man Neo-colonial puppet, white power with a black face He said, fuck it, I'll do it A master of the sky, expert at telling lies Then they gave him a Nobel Peace Prize Should've known he was trained in Chicago Where the chairman Fred and Mark talk What they do in the dark will come out in the light Like a WikiLeaks site So I guess the crew was right, who's ready to fight? Last thing to imperialism, I ain't kidding In the immortal words of Marvin Gates, this ain't living Got the strip with getting by.
mama didn't say shit. What's the bigger threat from a sama or from a farmer? Military bases from Chagos to Okinawa. I say things that other rappers won't say, cause my mind never closed like what's animal be. Obama the bomber getting ready for Syria First black president, the masses were hungry But the same president just bombed an African country like Of this brother And he's still blazing a trail Evil to death So he has an eternal flame His flame don't burn out Some of y'all flames burn out His flame is still strong Let us all get on our feet please and let's give a warm round of applause to a great hero all the way from Guinea, all the way from the mother country. Our brother, our friend, Brother Kwame Toure. Brother Kwame Toure, as he comes down. Let's give it up as he comes down the aisle. Brother Kwame Toure, this is a historic occasion for us to bring our brother back again to the slave theater. Let's give a warm round of applause to our brother, Brother Kwame Ture, who's been on the fire line, who shook up America in 1966, when he hollered, Black Power! 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 Black power, 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 black power. What time is it? What time is it? What time is it? What time is it? All right, Brother Kwame Ture, let's give it up, Brother Kwame Ture. Thank you. 
We want to thank you for your warm welcome. You must excuse us for uh, sitting, but we have uh, some pain in our legs. <coughs> and uh, we're trying as much as possible to stay off of it while we're doing some tests with the uh, doctors. Of course, the All-African People's Revolutionary Party is always happy to be with the United African Movement. Uh, the All-African People's Revolutionary Party is always happy to be with the United African Movement. And uh, there are three, members of, uh, three other members of our Central Committee who are present. Uh, Brother Ron Gibbs is here, no? Brother Ron Gibbs is here, yes. Sister Mawina Kuyate, who's also the head of the All-African Women's Revolutionary Union. And of course, we're always proud of our living history. Uh, this brother who has uh, come through many struggles was the chair of the Black Panther Party in New York during the rough times and since joined the All-African People's Revolutionary Party. I've had the honor of working with him for almost 30 years, a member of our Central Committee, the youngest member, David Brothers. <laughs> Thank you. Of course, we are always uh, honored to be with the uh, United African Movement because the world is divided into many, many different categories. But one of the categories which interests those of us who are concerned with advancing humanity the most is that between the conscious and the unconscious. This uh, division between the conscious and the unconscious must be properly understood. The people instinctively love freedom, and they will instinctively fight for freedom. But you cannot win freedom on instincts. You can only win freedom on reason. Therefore, the unconscious are those who react on instinct. The conscious are those who react on reason. The job of the conscious is to make the unconscious conscious. Let us make a simple example. I think it was in 1992, after one more brutal beatings too many, the African population in Los Angeles, California, revolted, rose up in righteous rebellion. This was instinctively revolutionary. Instinctively in the sense that it wasn't planned. Instinctive in the sense that it was this reaction to brutality. And this instinctive revolutionary act was very costly to American capitalism. It even had to bring in the American army, very costly. But since it was on instinct, it had no reason, nothing to direct it, it would spin itself out. Those who participated in it were largely unconscious. We must come to understand that the overwhelming majority of our people are unconscious. But just because they're unconscious, you shouldn't think they don't want freedom. As a matter of fact, sometimes the unconscious is quicker willing to give their lives in struggle than the conscious. These are simple facts. Would you imagine what it would be like when we are conscious rebellious, when we consciously organize to rebel in Los Angeles with reason? I mean making supply lines, 
making sure armaments are there, having hospital aids, having fire brigades, just like they do even in Ireland. Nothing big, just a little planning. Just a little planning. This is what we want to speak to you about this evening. Making the unconscious conscious. Now we must say from the very beginning, the only, underline the word only, the only route to consciousness is through struggle. Now for example, we've shown you the unconscious struggle. Those who rose up in righteous rebellion against the state police in Los Angeles, they were, they were consciously involved in struggle. They were involved in struggle, unconscious but involved in struggle. The conscious must understand precisely what their task is, and we've said this two years ago here, we repeat it. Ours is not to teach the people to be conscious, but to make them conscious of their unconscious behavior. Our task is not to teach the conscious to be, to teach the unconscious to be conscious, but to make them conscious of their unconscious behavior. Because unconsciously, instinctively, they seek freedom. What we must do is make them conscious. Look, you want freedom anyway. Let's be serious. Let's sit down. Let's plan it. Let's wait protracted war. And let's tear down the system and walk on to liberation. It's as simple as that. This aspect of the unconscious becoming conscious is linked to mobilization and organization. Something we mentioned last year. We must make clear distinctions between mobilizers and organizers. To be an organizer, you must be a mobilizer. But being a mobilizer doesn't make you an organizer. Much confusion is to be found here. Malcolm X was a great mobilizer. He was a great organizer. Martin Luther King was a great mobilizer. He was not a great organizer. These facts can be easily seen from King and Malcolm. When Malcolm went to a place, he left a mosque. When King went to demonstrations, he broke down desegregation and he moved on. As a matter of fact, King was not concerned with organization to the point that even though he was the most popular Baptist preacher in America without the shadow of a doubt, and probably beyond the shadow of a doubt, the most loved, he could not become president of the Baptist, National Baptist uh, Convention. Yeah, so many of them. The National Baptist Convention. <laughs> As a matter of fact, if my memory serves me correctly now, and I remember it was Mohammed Speaks that uh, carried the article on the front page in 1964 when King tried to become president of the National uh, Baptist Convention, there was so much confusion there that a minister was actually put, pushed off the stage and died in the trouble. Yeah. And of course, King lost. The man who won was a reactionary man by the name of Jackson. He never did nothing for the people, never cared about the people, just was a pork chop minister who used their money to put gas in his big Cadillac. But he was organized. But he was organized. We say that we must come to know the difference between mobilization and organization because the enemy will use mobilization to demobilize us. Mobilization is very easy. Very, very easy. Because since we are people who are instinctively ready to respond against acts of injustice, 
Anytime there's one little act of injustice, we can blow it up and we'll find people who come and make some mass demonstration around it. Miss Sally lost her job. Let's rally. She'll get her job back. People will come and rally. So-and-so got kicked out of school because the teacher's unjust. The unjust. The people will come and rally. They will come to rally at issues. And this is what mobilization does. It mobilizes people around issues. Those of us who are revolutionary are not concerned with issues. We're concerned with the system. The difference must be properly understood. The difference must be properly understood. Mobilization usually leads for reform action, not to revolutionary action. If we would look scientifically at the October 16th million and more march, we would see clearly that this was a mobilized event, not an organized event. We must know clearly the difference between mobilization and organization. One of the characteristics of mobilization is that it is temporary. Organization is permanent and eternal. Clear differences must be made because the unconscious can usually be captured easily around one-issue items, around mobilization items, but it's hard to catch them around organization. But these unconscious must be brought to organization. We must transform mobilization to organization. We say the enemy will come and use mobilization to demobilize us. Many brothers and sisters who've been to the Million and More March will say to you, I was there. Well, what are you doing today, my sister? I was there. There weren't too many sisters out there, but you know, with a million brothers together, you know where I had to be. I was there. <laughs> and then, of course, you find brothers, yeah, I was there, I was there. I helped you. What are you doing today, brother? If we're not careful, we allow mobilization to become events. The struggle is never an event. It's a process, a continual, eternal process. We say it is our job to use mobilization to drive us to organization. You know our theme is organization. We want power. We don't want money. We don't want fame. We don't want fortune. We don't want popularity. We want power. Power. And power comes only from the organized masses. Power comes only from the organized masses. Therefore, since this is what we're concerned with, power, and we as a Pan-Africanist, we have every right to be concerned with it. Africa, after all, is the richest continent on the face of the earth. Properly organized, should be the most powerful continent on the face of the earth. Therefore, our drive towards power is clear. We want power, and we can only have power through the organized masses. Of course, capitalism, a system which in deforming our thinking always seeks to make it appear as if the organized masses is some unattainable goal. Even the other day when speaking to a sister who, uh, sister who's been involved in uh, activities over a period of years, she said, Kwame uh, Ture, uh, so you when you say a mass party, what do you mean? I said, I mean a mass party. She said, but the APRP goes everywhere in England, they go in the Caribbean, in, uh, uh, in, uh, in the United States, in Africa, and they're always saying about a mass party. What do you mean? I said, every African in the world inside our party. She said, are you going to get that? 
I said, that's what I'm working for. And if I don't get it, my granddaughter gonna get it. But I'm working for it. <clears throat> Her disbelief comes from the fact that capitalism tells us that, well, you can be scientific about everything except human nature. That people are so different, they have such different tastes, such different tra-la-la-la, that you can't bring them together under the same roof. This is a lie. We will never tire of saying it. Capitalism does not lie some of the time. It lies all of the time. When it tells the truth, it's a result of a double lie. <coughs> it's a logical fact. It's a logical fact. So capitalism has this belief that you can't organize all the people around the same thing. That's not true. You can organize all the people around one thing, truth. Now, what capitalism will try to make it appear as if the truth is not one truth, but anybody can have the truth. This is stupidity. Nobody's born with the truth inside of them. If they were, they wouldn't need to live. We come to know the truth from outside of us. Some people think that they know the truth because they were born to know the truth. That's a lie. You know the truth from constant struggle against lies. That's how you know the truth. Constant struggle against lies. For example, they try to make it appear as if we Africans will not arrive at uniting ourselves even around, even the question around our identity. Well, you may call some of them Africans, but some call themselves black, some still call themselves colored, some, that's fact, they do that. But this is because they've been miseducated by a system which seeks to keep us divided, and this is the truth. And this is the truth. Obviously, we cannot be, all of us, so many different things. We must be one thing. Of course, for our party, there's no question. As for the United African Movement, we're Africans. End of discussion. End of discussion. This struggle is not an easy struggle. The struggle to go from Negro to black was a difficult struggle. Capitalism did everything to roll it back. Even had us confused. I'm not black, look at me, I'm brown colored. Yes. I'm not black, I got Indian blood in me. Oh. What nonsense they didn't have us say, just run away from the truth. We told them then, it is more difficult to go from Negro to black than it is to go from black to African. Many people criticized us for our efforts. Oh, in the 1970s, we had our last press conference, we said, we're going to put the word Africans on the lip of every African in America and we're not going to use the capitalist media press. And we have done it and we have not used the capitalist media press. As a matter of fact, the capitalist media press, in trying to stop us from going to Africans in America, tried to throw out African Americans. They did it. We saw the whole scene. It's our job. We followed it carefully. Of course, they want to say African-Americans, of course, that keeps us exactly where we are. If you're African-American, you're obviously not the same like an African-Kenyan. <laughs> and certainly not the same like an African-Brazilian. And certainly not the same like an African-Trinidadian, etc., etc., etc. But once you're just African, ain't no question. Ain't no question. 
You African, yeah, where you were born? Trinidad. You African, yeah, where were you born? Uganda. You African, yeah, where were you born? Egypt. You African, yeah, all Africans. Once you have proper identity, one of your biggest problems is solved. Because a people must know their national interests. A people must have a clear understanding of their national interest. The job of American imperialism is to let us think that our national interest is within the confines of American imperialism. That's why black American, African American, anything but make sure they hold on to America. When the conscious comes to understand that the Africans born in America Africans living in America, their whole outlook changes completely. America no longer becomes their world. Of course, this is a difficult task because America convinced everyone that she is the world. I'm sometimes amazed when I come in this country and hear them say world news. Here they come. World news. Today, President Clinton said... <clears throat> world news. Today, Newt Greenwich said... World news, those who's running for president can't. It's like, you know, it's like their World Football Association. <laughs> no, nobody played but them. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So uh, the first conscious act in organizing our people is to let them know who they are. If you think you're an American, you will fight to protect the interests of capitalist America. If you know you ain't no American, you fight to destroy every aspect of American capitalism. <laughs> Our people have been unconsciously moving towards Africa. You know, I am uh, very fortunate. I spend a lot of time with our people, and I always stay with the poor. I stay with the poor because the poor, they are pure. I mean, the poor will fight and give their lives for positions which they're incapable of occupying. They shock me sometimes with their naivety and their honesty. No wonder they can so easily be exploited. I remember one sitting in Ghana at the house of uh, Akbar Mohammed, who's the uh, international representative of the Nation of Islam. And uh, there was a lot of people in the house, so I walked outside in the gate, and I sat down, there's a little kennel there, and a concrete, I sat down by the kennel. The gardener next door came and sat down next to me. We began talking. So we talked naturally about Ghana. We talked about Ghana, we talked about Nkrumah. So after a while he said, were you born in Ghana? Are you Ghanaian? I said, no, I wasn't born in Ghana. I just live in Guinea. He said, but you know a lot about uh, Ghana. I said, well, yeah, I did a lot of study of the Ghana Revolution. I didn't tell him that I was the... Uh, political secretary of Kwame Nkrumah when Nkrumah was co-president in Guinea. I didn't even tell him who I was. You know, it, Kwame Ture meant nothing to him, just another name. After talking with the man for about half an hour, you know what the man said to me? doesn't even know me now. He said, you know what? He said, listen, I only went to third standard. That's like about third grade. He said, I don't have no education, but people like me, we could fight and put people like you in power and you'll help us. Yes. I've seen it everywhere. In the South, I used to see people die for positions they couldn't occupy. As a matter of fact, people who couldn't get to the university died so students who had the ability could get to the university. People who couldn't vote died so people become mayors. 
It is these pure poor that we must be concerned with. These are the ones we must organize. These are the real makers of history. Forget the ones who are always talking and doing nothing. Get the poor, the pure. Watch their movement. The instincts are always correct. Our people have been unconsciously moving more and more towards Africa. Of that there isn't the slightest question. I saw it years ago. In the mid-1970s, I was going through Mississippi. I'd spent the 60s there and visited a sister whom I know was very active in the movement. She'd now been married and had a child. So the husband and her were very excited. They wanted to show me the child, as any uh, parents would be. And of course, me too, I was excited because I knew it was a little girl. I wanted to see uh, my granddaughter, if you will. So uh, when she came, I held the door. I said, what's the name? She said, uh, Ajola. I said, Ajola? She said, yes. I said, what does it mean? She said, I don't know. I just made it up. Does it sound African? <laughs> this was in the mid-1970s in Mississippi. I remember in the 1970s, late 1970s, I saw a young man. He was wearing a red, black, and green jacket. I stopped the man, young boy. I said, young blood, what's this uh, red, black, and green? He said, those are our colors. I said, what do you mean, our colors? He said, man, these are our colors. You don't know our colors? I said, no, what do you mean, our colors? He said, man, red for blood, green for the lamb, black for us. You don't know this? I said, no, I don't know this. He said, man, where are you coming from? He started to walk away. I said, brother, have you ever heard of a man called Marcus Garvey? He said, Marcus Garvey, who's he? I said, he's the one who gave you the colors. <laughs> the unconscious are moving towards Africa. It is job of the conscious to make them conscious of their unconscious actions. Since our people are moving towards Africa, it behooves us clearly to come seriously and to organize properly this movement and putting Africa as its primary. This is the job of the conscious. But the conscious gets their sustenance from the unconscious. I am certain that most of the brothers and sisters attending the Million and More March were unconscious. Unconscious in the sense that they do not consciously try to develop themselves in a systematically basis, on a day-to-day -day basis, to make a contribution to the people. But the milieu which that unconscious mass created now makes it possible for the conscious mass to make this unconscious mass quickly conscious. <laughs> quickly conscious. And this is our task. I had the honor, when working for the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee in 1968 in Washington, D.C., after having served as one year as the chair of the organization, of being with the stick team that helped develop the first black united front in this country. It came out of Washington, D.C. It was well organized. After leaving for Africa and uh, much confusion, mainly with the infusion of money into the black united front, the front fell apart. Moving to the All African People's Revolutionary Party, we have done everything in our possibility to create an African United Front. What do we mean by an African United Front? We are saying that those organizations which are politically on the front lines fighting for our people, like the NAACP, like the Urban League, like the Nation of Islam, etc., etc., should come together and form a united front. This united front is a very simple thing now. A very simple task, 
All it means is that we come together and have common meetings. And if we hear one attacking the other newspaper, we don't respond to the newspaper. We telephone each other and ask them. Our party's been doing much work on this. Because we're among comrades who work, we will give you some of our files, which is not made public. Only here are we doing so. The Nation of Islam was an observer at the Washington, D.C. Black United Front. Although invited to join, they felt that at that time they wanted to observe. They were allowed full participation except voting which they themselves accepted as observers. That is, they could fully participate in every level of the discussion. When the United Front broke up, the All-African People's Revolutionary Party quickly moved to put together a United Front. We had brought together Mr. Roy Wilkins, who was alive at that time. This was in 1972. Uh, Vernon Jordan. Who was before Vernon Jordan? Vernon Jordan, the one who died in Africa. Whitney Young. No, it was, I'm sorry, Whitney Young had died, it's correct. It was Vernon Jordan. Vernon Jordan was then at the Urban League. Of course, uh, the Honorable Elijah Muhammad was alive, and he was sending uh, Honorable Minister Louis Farrakhan as his representative. Jesse Jackson was representing Push. Dorothy Hyde, the uh, National Council of Negro Women. Reverend uh, Abernathy, the Southern Christian Leadership Conference, in his core, and we represented the All-African People's Revolutionary Party. My brothers and sisters, I'll tell you the truth. You must never get discouraged in struggle. You will build something and the enemy will knock it down. And you'll have to start from zero. But as we say in our party, we're starting from a higher qualified zero. You must never be discouraged in struggle. As a matter of fact, the easiest way for the enemy to take you out is to make you frustrated and disgusted. Oh, I went to that meeting. They ain't doing nothing. I ain't got no time for them. Until they get serious, I ain't going there. What you doing? I ain't doing nothing. 